Thanks for calling the Midnight Drive-In. No one is here to take your call. This week's movies are Bad Boys from 1983 and Scum. How did you know my dating profile? For more info, check out the Midnight Drive-In on Twitter at MNDriveInPod or find us on Facebook. If you want to email us, send it to themidnightdrivein at gmail.com. Remember, no outside food or drink. Anyone caught performing sexual acts at the drive-in will immediately be taken to the office. Unspeakable things will be done to you. Thanks for calling. Drive away your worries and cares at this drive-in theater. That's why, to familiarize you with the movie rating symbols which will be used by this theater, we present the following guide for parents and young people. X, no one under 17 admitted. I need to cleanse my soul. Yeah, I told you guys we were going a little more dark and serious this week. You guys didn't believe me. I was, I was telling Brian, we'll, we'll get into it once we get into the episode, but I think my problem might have been watching them in the wrong order. Because one is, one is far worse than the other. Yeah, I can, I can accept that. A little more difficult than watch. Yeah. Because the anal rape is only implied in one movie and shown in the other movie. Is that what you're getting at? Oh, it's, it's a long scene. Well, speaking of anal rape, Doug, why don't you tell us all about Scum? <laughs> that is... I'm surprised that's not on the poster. Speaking of anal rape. <laughs> um... Well, I can't give you a plot description of Scum because it doesn't really have a plot. It does not. It is basically just a look at the goings-on in a British juvenile uh, institution. I forget. I will look. use the proper word. The Borstal in uh, 1979. Yeah. It's basically... <laughs> It's just in case you didn't want to kill yourself when you woke up this morning. They made this nice movie so that you can watch it, and mm-hmm. it's just uh, one terrible thing going on after another. There, it just it just shows you how much of a hoot it is to be in a juvenile detention center in in the UK. Yeah, I would I would describe it as Requiem for a Dream with less drugs and one I spit on your grave esque gang rape of a child. Yeah. I would say teenager, not child, because I'm a little bit more specific than you in my plot descriptions. But other than that, you're not wrong. <laughs> it is, uh, yeah, it, like, I don't know. I don't think there's a main character. Um, I don't think that there's no thorough through plot. There are a couple of different intertwining plots, but it basically follows like three guys that show up at a detention center together. Um, it's okay. So the three guys show up together. They're each brought in, brought into a room and beaten up by guards. Uh, then they're escorted to their rooms where the one guy who has a history of trying to run away is put in like a, a private cell. So they keep closer tabs on him. The other guy is put in like a dorm cell where he's basically told the guy in this bed is the one that's going to beat the shit out of you if you step out of line. So don't. And the third guy is also given a private cell, and he's told in no uncertain terms that you're getting a private cell because you're black, and we really just can't put black people in with white people because they'll probably kill you. 
Except they use way more racist language to tell him that because they're not doing it for like protection. They're doing it to prevent themselves from filling in the paperwork from his death. It is, yeah, it is just harsh. There are, like I said, these, it's a group of criminals. There's no, like, we'll talk about the next movie that they have a protagonist, but there is no protagonist in this movie. The closest thing to a protagonist might be the Archer character, who's just a smartass the whole time. He's sort of the comic relief. I was going to say, he was probably my favorite character. Yeah, I liked him a lot, um, but it, it was pretty easy to be likable amongst this group. Like, the next closest thing to a main character is... Um, uh, what's his name? I, I should have kept the IMDb open in front of me or something, so I didn't know the name. So, you know, the, the, the guy that ends up taking over the and being kind of the leader of all the inmates. And this is a guy who, um, when challenged to a fight, sneaks a metal pipe in under his coat, beats the guy to a tar with it, yells racial slurs at him for a while, and then walks away. Carlin. That's our, our hero character. Yeah, Carlin. There yeah. you go. Um, yeah. That That's the closest thing to a hero we get in this movie. Um, yeah. Yeah. All the guards are pieces of shit that, like, like they literally start yeah. beating these kids the day they show up at the prison. They witness uh, violence and choose not to involve themselves in it. Um, and several occasions, simply getting the victim of the violence in trouble is when he was, like, punched, he fell and knocked something over, and they get him in trouble for making a mess. Um, that's who we're dealing with. Hard, hard movie. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Opinion. I read, I read somewhere that it's like the guards are not concerned about rehabilitating anybody. Nope. It's just about basically keeping them locked up. That's about it. Yeah. Well, there is, because there is one moment where in this, where there's, because there's like, I don't know, they call her a matron, which I didn't really understand what her job is because some of the British terminology doesn't make sense to me. But she's kind of like, I guess she's supposed to be like a counselor to these kids. And she has a group of them in a room and there's like, it's literally like, well, does anybody have any problems? And the one guy's like, why am I being kept in an institution so far from home? I never get any visitors and I'm just like alone here and I don't fit in and I don't like, and her response is like, well, you shouldn't have committed your crimes if you didn't want to be in here. This is supposed to be the counselor saying this to him. And like one of the other prisoners sits up and he's like, he's 14. Like they bring that like really clear, like, He's crying because he misses his mom. Regardless of what crimes he committed, this is a 14-year-old kid who's crying because he misses his mom, and you're supposed to be his counselor. Like, well, and don't they... Uh, see, I thought whenever they're talking, too, that they insinuate that he's actually not like a hardened criminal, and something about that the, the type of place he was supposed to be in was full, so they just put him in this other one. Yeah, uh, it wasn't really clear to me again because of some of the terminology because this is a british film um i had issues with understanding like whether he was supposed to be in an even more harsh institution or if he was supposed to be in an easier institution or... no i see i thought i thought they were almost insinuating that he should have been in some kind of uh home for the infirmed because you know that kid's kind of weird in the thing yeah too. and i think think they were like well yeah you should be there but instead you're here in this horrible prison with these hardened criminal children so fuck you yeah yeah i I mean that's a completely reasonable interpretation of the scene and it's like i don't 
I, I, like when you see something like that on screen, like how, how, what are you supposed to think about that? You're just like, wow, they're treating that guy terribly. And he probably deserves some harsh treatment if he's in this place. And there's no indication that, you know, none of these guys are innocent of their crimes or anything like that. But still it's like, what the fuck is happening? Like, why aren't they doing anything to help these kids get better? <laughs> what is the point of this place? I don't, I don't understand anything about this movie. It's it's some somehow it manages to be the most exploitative movie I've ever seen in my entire life because there's no there's no plot justification for anything that happens. Everything just happens so that something on the screen is happening. But in general, exploitation is to like entertain people and to give you some kind of thrill or enjoyment out of it, and you don't get any of that with this. No. So it's all the bad parts of exploitation with none of the good parts of exploitation. Yeah, I don't think exploitation is the right word to use in describing this film. I think they're trying to give an honest view of what it would be like to be in one of these places in Britain in in 1979. And I think, you know, I think the fact that it's Britain, the fact that it's 1979 is very important because you would have had a time where the sort of hardcore conservative era of Britain was just getting kind of ramped up. The kind of the Margaret Thatcher years were on their way. And at the same time, you know, there'd be a hardcore like punk movement going on as well, if I understand things correctly. So it's, they're really trying to say like, look at these shitty fucking kids who are screwing everything up. And then look at how fucked our society is. We do nothing to help them get better. We just make them worse. And so I think it's like they're trying to make a point. I mean, um, the point I mean, is the, this: this sucks. We should we shouldn't be al- doing this. Although I don't think any of that point comes across. I think this this movie comes across as softcore porn or sadistic pedophiles. Oh, I oh, I I completely disagree with that assessment. Because I think everything in it is just ogling at cruelty. That's that's all it is. No, I I, I don't I don't agree with that. I I think it's yes, there's cruelty on screen throughout the film. Um, there's there's only cruelty on screen throughout the film. Yes, but I think that's the point. They're saying they're saying look how bad this is. Look at what happens when you put when you put these people in here and you don't like you're not protecting the ones that can't protect themselves and you're not like like you're not doing something to make their lives better and to help them move forward um right but but normally when when you're trying to get that point across don't you normally uh i don't know have pitiable characters occasionally instead of just all all bad people doing all well, bad things to everyone. <laughs> okay, yeah, but I think, and I think this is uh, the, this is the problem with if you're trying to make the point that you treat people in prisons better in order to improve them so that they come out better. You, uh, where I think a lot of prison movies fall apart is that if the guys if there's if the guy's like innocent and gets thrown in jail or if he's not a bad guy he just did one little bad thing and you have him going to jail and then he becomes that sympathetic character that you want to help that makes it too easy to just say okay fuck it 
yeah, of course, that guy we should help because he's just, you know, he's just a guy that made a mistake. But look at all these other terrible animals that deserve to be treated this way. The message they're trying to get across is that you shouldn't treat people this way, period. It doesn't matter. Like, by treating them this way, you're making them worse, not making them better. See, see once again, I don't, I don't know if that's true, though, because there, there are prison movies where they have people that are both bad people and pitiable characters where you're like, okay, well, that person's you know, a terrible person, but they're not an inhuman monster. They're just a bad person. In this movie, they're like, no, they're all monsters. <laughs> I don't know that they're all monsters. Because um, when the three, like the three people that show up at the beginning, you've got the, the I, I can't use any of the words. Uh, his, I think his name was Angel. Is the, the black kid that shows up at the beginning. Yeah. And you've got like the weak crying kid. And then you've got Carlin and Carlin is like all of them come in. They're all behaving at the beginning. Right. And we get the backstory that like, yeah, Carlin uh, was transferred here after being convicted of assaulting a guard, but he was trying to defend himself when being attacked by two adults as a teenager. Um, You know, the other guy, the cryy kid, he has a history of running away but we can see from his character immediately that he's he wasn't running away because he's some hardened criminal that's going to like get back out on the streets and commit more crimes. He's fucking just breaking under the pressure of this place. Um, and you know, we don't really, I don't know if we even get told exactly what Angel's story is as to why he's in there exactly, but you can tell clearly that he's been the victim of discrimination in his life because it happens 25 times throughout the movie. Um, so I do think that there's a lot of like, they're saying like, look, you've taken these guys by taking this Carlin character who came in, who was seemed content at the beginning to keep his head down, but you intentionally took him and stuck him in the bed beside the guy that you knew was going to mount him in the middle of the night and punch him in the face 30 times. They brought these guys in who were clearly problematic individuals, but then intentionally put them in situations that would make things worse instead of making things mm-hmm. better. Yeah. They pretty much promoted like a power struggle. Yeah, and then they took the advantage of that um, at every at every turn. It was the adults that were in charge of this weird youth prison, where some of the people were old enough to be married, just decided that they would pit teenagers against each other. I think as a divide and conquer tactic, but mostly, I mostly it seemed like a power struggle for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very oddly set up, like. We mentioned before, it's not really built to um, fix anybody. It's just, I don't know, it's built right. to keep them out of society and then pretty much create their own society where they, yeah, they're doing weird mind games with everybody. It's a three ring circus of human suffering, only without all the enjoyable parts of a circus. Yeah, I mean, nothing about this movie is enjoyable. Um, it's and that's not a failure of the film because it's not meant to be enjoyable. Mm. Like, I think you're supposed to watch this and you're supposed to squirm and go to your think to yourself, like, is it really that bad in these places? Is everything really this horrible? Do the guards really care that little about the people they're supposed to be protecting? Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, the the position of the film is yes, yes, it is that terrible. Yes, it is that horrible. Mm. 
Yeah, uh, I got booted off for a little bit, so I don't even know what you guys talked about. But did you talk we about about, no? We talked about a bunch of stuff, but once again, I, I'm not exactly sure when it died. Did you talk about Noah's favorite part? The, the fucking the fucking goddamn it! <laughs> I'm angry. <laughs> I fucking hate this movie. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, so this movie—it's like watching Hellraiser, but it's only the part of Hellraiser where Frank's trying to fuck his niece. It's like this—that's <laughs> it. It's just that—the worst, grossest part of the entire movie. None of the good parts. Just the weird Frank trying to fuck his niece. Um, I don't know how we're supposed to react to that <laughs> comment. I don't know. So Noah says he hates this movie. I don't feel like this is a movie you're supposed to like. No, I, like I, if I, I like, meet if I meet anybody who's like Scum is my favorite movie, I'm gonna be like we cannot be friends, yeah. and you should just probably go somewhere else. Yeah, like this movie isn't designed for people to sit down, get out the popcorn, and have a good time. It's designed to make you think. It's designed <laughs> to make you go like, like what, what the actual fuck is wrong with the world. But the only and, thing it makes me think about is how much I fucking hate the person who made this movie for making this movie. Okay, but look, a lot of the stuff you're upsetting about is you're right to be upset about it because it's meant to be upsetting. But mm-hmm. keep in mind that there's a lot more subtle stuff going on in this movie too. I mean, the the Archer character is the one who is um, you know, he, he's a little bit more of an intellectual. They mentioned that he was working in an office before he uh, got arrested and all that. But his one of his big complaints is that they won't give him books to read that are at a level where he's capable of reading. And so here's a character who, you know, regardless of the fact that he committed some crimes to get in there, I think he was some, some sort of theft is what he's convicted of. He's trying to better himself by reading classic novels, and they won't even let him do that. Um, but you know, but at the same time, the same problem. Once once again, you and you'd think it'd make his character pitiable, but the truth is, he does nothing but antagonize and piss everyone off that can help him, even the ones that seem to like him and are trying to help him. He just spits in their face, and then they don't help him because he's a piece of shit. Um, yeah, there's some truth to that, yeah. but I, I think you, there's a cyclical nature to what goes on in prisons where reform is not uh, is not the goal and the problem is you get somebody in there who has the potential to do better and you don't encourage that so they put their efforts somewhere else and in the case of the archer character his efforts go into just kind of pissing everybody off for fun um for people who haven't seen the movie and maybe don't want to sit through a movie of this nature like He's he's the guy that refuses to wear shoes through the first half of the movie because he's a vegetarian, um, and he just says, "I'm not going to wear leather shoes." And he, we later find out that he wasn't a vegetarian until he got there and found out that he could make them, he could piss people off by insisting he's a vegetarian. He uh, he he he's, so at first he claims to be an atheist, um, so that every Sunday when the entire prison is in mass together, because keep in mind this is an English movie and uh, England has like an official church, right? So everybody goes to the, whatever the name of the English church is, and they all go there every Sunday, but one guard has to sit. It's called the Church of England. (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> not very clever, but whatever. That's not what we're here to review. Um, yeah. So he, but he insists on being somewhere else because he's an atheist. So they have to have one guard go and sit with him. And that's the kind of shit he does just to piss people off. When they finally tell him he's got to learn to find God, he tells them that he's feeling a, a yearning coming straight from Mecca. And they fucking lose their minds. <laughs> and it's like, he's obviously saying that just to piss them off. But mm-hmm. maybe if they'd given him his Dostoevsky novels, he'd been reading those instead of putting his efforts into these other things, right? Yeah. See, no, um, it's um, hard to believe that because everyone in this movie is a piece of shit. I, I think he would have been just as much of a piece of shit. He would have just been a piece of shit with a better book to read. I don't know. Like, well, he but, had but, something else to do. Yeah, but then your argument is everybody in this movie is a piece of shit. So why not be a piece of shit to them because he's not going to get anything out of it because they're all pieces of shit. Well, I think either way, everyone's going to be a piece of shit. That's the problem with the writing of this movie. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, they're already pieces of shit. They're not like going to help him at all. So he's like, you know what? I've discovered that they have to adhere to some sort of standards if I tell them I'm a vegetarian. And it's going to cause them more annoyance throughout their day. So I'm totally going to say I'm a vegetarian. Just so they have to do all this stupid shit that they don't want to. Well, and, and there is another interesting thing that I find with his character. Because he is an, uh, the, the more intellectual guy. And he knows all the rules. And he walks the line, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't really break any rules throughout this movie. Uh, he finally gets, When he finally gets busted, it's for like insubordination or something silly like that. Where you can't really yeah. prove what it means. Yeah, um, some weird and, subjective thing that they could throw in his face. Yeah. You you pissed a guard off is all it is, right? Yeah. And okay, but that raised that, that raises an interesting thing here where it's like when you've got a prison and you've got prisoners and you've got guards, I expect more from the guards than I do from the prisoners. I expect them to do the right thing and to follow the rules more than I expect prisoners to because the guards have been given a position of authority and that comes with responsibility. And what his character draws a lot of attention to by walking that line and by demanding his exercise when he's in a solitary confinement and they, they try to say like, oh, well, you didn't get exercise today because of the weather. And he's like, I can see outside. It didn't rain today. I should have been allowed out. He should have been allowed out. That's the right thing to do in those circumstances, and the guards had a responsibility to do that, and he's drawing attention to that. So yeah, he is annoying, and yeah, he does cause headaches that are unnecessary for people, like making them go get him plastic shoes instead of leather shoes. Okay, I can see why that's a frustration. But the people in a position of authority have a responsibility to follow the rules and to do their best in the circumstances, and they don't even vaguely attempt in this movie to do that. And I think that that's a lot of the point that the movie is trying to make is to say like, yeah, look, these prisoners, they've done their crimes. They deserve to be in some sort of institution or whatever, but that doesn't make the other guys good guys. And I think it's not unreasonable, especially in dealing with, um, in dealing with youthful offenders. Like you want these guards to be somewhat caring about trying to make sure that these people are protected and, at least kept physically safe, if not encouraged to better themselves while they're in the institution. And none of that goes on here. Yeah. 
Yeah, because they're all pieces. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, everybody, everybody in the movie is a piece of shit. I, Nobody's arguing. Well, the, like the only that's, that's what I'm saying. No, I get, I, I get the point that you're trying to make. What I'm saying is that because of the way they portray everyone in this film, that the solution at the end is not what you seem to think that the, the filmmaker thinks. You know, the filmmaker's like, no, see, everyone's treating each other badly, and we should treat each other better. And by the end of this movie, I'm like, no, they should bar the doors to that building and burn it the fuck down with every single character inside. Every single one of them. The governor included. Burn them all. I hope they all fucking die. Like, <laughs> I fucking, I hate everyone in this movie. The one, the one character who maybe no. didn't deserve to die fucking killed himself already. So burn that fucker down. <laughs> which, which, which of the two characters that killed themselves during the movie do you think didn't deserve to die? <laughs> well, the one we don't really get much explanation as to his suicide. So I'm, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, and I'm going to say two people didn't deserve to die, and they're the two that killed themselves. <laughs> yeah, not unreasonable. Um, yeah, and, but, okay, so, this is, we're supposed to be arguing about movies, not arguing about the politics of the prison system in the UK in the 1970s, which none of us are qualified to discuss. Then, um, then I will add something to my thing, the filmmaker and everyone involved in the making of this film should also be locked in the building with the characters <laughs> when it is burned. Okay, but say what you will. From a filmmaking perspective, the the suicide that happens on camera to narrow it down of all the suicides that happen in this movie, the There's one that two. happens entirely on camera. No, the one is a suicide attempt on camera, but he oh, survives yeah. and then guess, later kills himself again off screen. So, so for those keeping track at home for the home game, it's three suicide attempts. Two of them are successful throughout the movie. Um, but the the guy that. So he, he's in his cell. He's been in there alone. He's been victimized this whole movie. He calls the guard and he's just like, basically tells the guard, I'm fucking flipping out. Like, I can't handle this. And the guard tells him to shut the fuck up and leaves. He then slits his wrists, panics, calls the guard again, to which the guard does not come back, and then bleeds out. And we see all that on camera. Like, he slits his wrists under, like, the blanket or whatever. But we see an awful fucking lot of blood, which I think is because yeah. I think that's the whole point of slitting your wrists is then all of your blood will come out. Mm. Um, and we watch him basically bleed out, and it is fucking hard to watch. And it's did did we probably, mention that this is literally immediately following the extremely long, drawn out, and brutal gang rape scene of the same character while a guard watches. Well, the guard doesn't watch the whole time. He just oh. he notices it's happening. <laughs> okay, 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 Doug, we'll cut him some slack. He doesn't watch the whole thing. <laughs> My point is the filmmaking is excellent. I, I think. You might not want to watch a movie like this. That's fine. That's a matter of opinion. But objectively speaking, that scene is meant to be very difficult to watch. I think they were successful in making a scene that is very difficult to watch. Actually, two scenes that were very difficult to watch. The gang rape scene, as much as it's upsetting to you, good. Gang rape scenes should be upsetting to you. <laughs> like that's, I, I think that this is better than a lot of what goes on in the 80s movies that we talk about 
So let's compare it to German shit porn. I'm sure somewhere in the the category of German shit porn, there's a a fantastic cinematographer who gets all the lighting right. He does an amazing job making his weird German shit porn. It's still German shit porn. Here's the thing, though. You keep trying to talk about this like it's porn, and it's fucking not. It's gross. Like that's gonna, that's that's offensive to the filmmakers, okay? Because it should like, be porn is. I was going to say you know this. Porn. You know this it's isn't real, right? Like this isn't meant. This isn't meant to get people excited. You're not supposed to watch that film, that scene, and be like, "Ooh, that was great." You're supposed to watch that scene, and you're supposed to say, "Fuck, I wish I'd never watched that." And then you're, when the movie's over, you're supposed to be thinking holy shit, that scene that I don't want to watch is probably something that really happens in these types of institutions on a regular basis. And we do know that that happens in these institutions on a regular basis, and we choose to do nothing about it. So these filmmakers are really doing a service to society by making this horrific scene, because most most of the time when that topic comes up, it's treated as a joke. It's, you know, a, it's a, it's a, it's a punchline on Saturday Night Live about how you don't want to fucking get caught committing a crime because you know what happens in there kind of thing and those types of jokes are going to encourage more of this to happen in the real world where a film like this would actually probably discourage that from happening it would actually make people think maybe we should do something about that maybe that guard is a piece of shit for not stepping up and stopping that and for not even and for coming in later and basically victim blaming you know that not all filmmaking is meant to be a fun popcorn movie some filmmaking is meant to drive home a point and that's what they're doing here but once again i don't think this film makes that point i know you're arguing for it that's what what i'm saying the thing i find insulting about the film isn't the attempted point being made it's the fact that i don't think that fucking point is actually ever made i think this film is an entirely lingering voyeuristic look into suffering and that is fucking gross it's, I completely disagree that with, with the comments. I just think it's the idea that this film is voyeuristic. People who peek in windows as voyeurs are not peeking in windows because they want to know what's going on and they want to understand the situation and see if they can find out what's going wrong so that maybe we can have a discussion about how to improve it. They're peeking in because... Because they like to watch that terrible shit. Yeah, and but that's the thing. That's not what this is. This isn't people... This isn't... This isn't filmmakers who think like, man, it'd be great if we got to watch a guy get raped, so we should just film that. It's them saying it's horrific that this happens, but in the real world it's happening, and somebody needs to tell that story. Somebody needs to show the world what's happening in these places, and our film is a way to do that. And I disagree. <laughs> I don't like it. That's, that's, that's where we're stuck at. I'm, I'm just telling you, that's not what I see whenever I see this movie. I don't, I don't believe that for one fucking second. I just, I, I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know how you can watch this and think that they thought they were making like a titillating, exciting exploitation film. Like we, like we do talk. About I'd, I'd almost, I'd almost say I don't believe that they think that that's what they were doing. I think that it was a gross lingering on stuff. Like it's the way it's shot. It's, it's just, it's fucking disgusting. Everything about this movie is gross. I don't like it. You know, how but, the kid didn't really get raped, right? I know. It's just a movie. I get I get that it's just a movie. But everybody has their weird breaking points with stuff, and this this movie way goes over my line of of what is acceptable whenever you're making a movie. 
It didn't really seem that bad to me. Which is which is fine. And I'm not telling you guys that your view is wrong. I'm just telling you this is my view. Yeah. This this movie, like down to my bones, <laughs> I fucking hate this movie. See, that's the way you were talking about it over over chat or whatever. And I hadn't seen it yet, so I was like worried about watching this movie. And then I did, and I was just like, oh, well. I mean, yeah, it's not great. Like, it's not supposed to be, but it's definitely not as bad as I thought it was going to be. No, and and I would argue, really, the first, like, half of this movie is actually kind of fucking boring. Because it, it really doesn't kick off until, uh, what's, what's his face? Weird blonde dude with no fucking purpose hits the guy with the pool balls. Mm. Carlin, yeah. Yeah. That's that's really when the movie gets going. And then the last 20 minutes is all pretty much just 100% gross. I mean, I think it escalates and uh, I I, I don't, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't describe anything in the first half as boring, but it's much more of a drama film setting up the world than it is anything else. (laughs) Plus I like, I like movies to have endings too. And this one doesn't have it. Well, this one does. Again, this this is a non-traditional movie. There isn't a plot. There isn't a beginning, middle, and end. It's a a look at the world. And yeah, I don't. I mean, if if this were a more traditional film, I think because this, I think this was made for like BBC, and I think like they have a lot more creative control over there, where they can say like, we're not going to tag on a climactic ending to this because we just don't want to like it's just not it doesn't suit the film i think it would have felt cheesy if it did um i can understand well this was this originally there was a a version of scum that was made for television because it was it's like based off a play or something this guy wrote yeah and apparently they didn't want to air it so they banned it so he decided to make a movie version of it and it immediately went on the video nasties list yeah. It didn't even really screen to like 15 years later or something like that. Which, yeah, I mean, the whole video is nasty. Unless we could get into that discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, I, this one, I feel like, like there are a lot of different reasons why the movies get put on that list. And I think this one, considering what else exists out in the world, I think this one was not put on the list due to its violence or its depiction of sexual assault. It was probably its depiction of authority figures. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you know, most most likely. So, but it doesn't surprise me to know that it was on that list. It surprises me to know I've never seen it because I went out of my way to try and watch a lot of that list. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's how that's why I don't think you should ban things. Is because when you put something on a banned list, it makes me want to watch it. Yeah. No, so normally, that's true for me too. <laughs> I think this time, for the first time, I would have watched it and been like, "Oh no, I get it." <laughs> still don't think still don't think it should be banned because you know if if people want to watch their gross horrible disgusting movie they should be able to all right so noah apparently was not a fan where did you fall on on this movie doug um no well, okay fan no um <laughs> i i think that they did a very good job of making the film they were trying to make. I can completely understand why some people would not want to sit through it. Um, I think that's sort of the point. Um, so I think, yeah. 
extremely difficult to watch. Very, very hard to see. And just, that's the point. That's what they're trying. They're trying to drive that point across. Mm-hmm. They're trying to make you... It's the kind of movie where they would want people to feel like they should get up and leave, but also feel like they need to sit through the rest of it, like almost out of a sense of responsibility. And I think it's successful at being that. Yeah, that's, that's about where I'm at, too. It's, it does its job well, but, I mean, since it does its job well, that makes me not really enjoy watching it. Yeah. No, and, and yeah, there, there, are, there are different types of cinema, and this is not a type of cinema where they want you to have fun watching the movie at all. I don't think yeah. anybody's really arguing that. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I did watch these in, in reverse order to Noah. So maybe this that, wasn't. That was probably a good plan. Yeah. So, so I, who watched what in what order? I watched Scum first. Okay. So he thinks he should have watched Bad Boys first. So he was probably laughing during Bad Boys at this point. <laughs> Actually, I think I think maybe I could have uh, tolerated all of the things in Bad Boys if I had not first seen this. But this put me so, like, and I watched this a, a fucking almost a week ago, and I'm still on edge about this fucking movie. I cannot, I cannot stand to watch another movie with another like person being harmed right now. It's just it sucked all the life out of me. This it hurt my will to live. I, I think that's a compliment to the film. Sure. Sure. I don't know. Kudos to the fuckhole that made this movie. Jesus Christ. Alright, well, since you're in such a great mood, Noah, why don't you tell us about Bad Boys? Bad Boys is a movie about uh, a bunch of terrible people trying to commit the same crime. <laughs> Which is... <laughs> I don't... I guess that's like entertaining in a weird way. Uh, shit goes south. Sean Penn's best friend dies. He goes to prison. He kills uh, another guy who is a famous actor, but I can't remember his name. So he just kind of looks like the guy who plays Fez on that 70s show. <laughs> kills kills his brother. Uh, so, yeah. So Sean Penn goes to prison. He's accosted by the Kurgan and some other guy. Uh, and, and technically, it's not prison. It's a boys' reform school. Okay, it's a juvenile <laughs> detention thing. Whatever. That, is our, that is our theme for the week: is comparing and contrast the treatment of juvenile offenders in the U.S. versus the U.K. Right, right, right. Uh, so basically, much much like the last film, he becomes the daddy. And uh, <laughs> uh, what's his face? So so then there's some there's some child rape and then there's some girlfriend rape and then uh Fez gets put in the prison with him and then the rest of the movie is a weird waiting game of when are they going to try to kill each other and and then they try to kill each other and then the movie's it's over. Isai Morales by the way. Who? Yes. That's are you the trying- are you so talking about the guy are you, you're calling Fez? Are you yes. talking about the guy who looks like Fez or the guy who actually is Fez? <laughs> The guy who looks like Fess. Oh, okay. If you want to know what his most famous role is, I'll give you a hint. Richie! Eh? That's him at the end of La Bamba after Richie Valens dies. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. I, I feel his most famous role is as uh, 
the guy that looks like Fez. <laughs> His name is actually Paco, just so to clarify. He's actually a very good actor who's been in lots and lots of stuff. Yes, yes, yeah. he is. But he's not a particularly recognizable face. He's just a good actor. Speaking speaking of filmmaking where the camera lingers on something for just a little bit too long, man, whenever he hits that dude's brother in the car, yep. the camera stays on that kid getting hit for way too long. Because <laughs> it's oh. just as effective if you cut away. And instead they're like, no, let's, let's let this horrible child mannequin flop across the hood of this car. Uh, I don't know. I, I just I don't know if I have a problem with it because I think that that's a very well made scene. There's about four or five scenes of violence in this movie that I think are very effective. Um, really good use of violence, um, and I, and then you know those are four or five scenes in a movie that I think it's like two hours and three minutes long or something. Yeah. So it's, I think it's they they know like they know okay this is going to be one of those moments that's going to make the audience go, holy shit, look at that. And they, they don't hold back. And then they get back into their director, their dramatic filmmaking in between. I think they do a really good job of that actually. See, once again, I think, I think if I had not have watched scum first, I think it, it might've been laughable. Cause once again, it's clearly a mannequin. Like, cause they live for too long. Yeah. And I mean, keep in mind it's 1983 technology and, yeah, yeah, and and while it's it's it is an effective scene and it's hardcore. Once again, if I had not previously watched Scum, I probably would have been like, hey, mannequin," and in, yeah. and instead I was like, "Ugh, fuck." <laughs> I, I think that the um, I think that okay, so the the central kind of theme of this movie to me is you have these two characters who are both pieces of shit at the beginning. I have the Sean Penn character O'Brien and uh, Paco. Hmm. They're, they're both just like garbage the teenagers are growing up in chicago and like the shitty part of town and they're both constantly in trouble and then it everything comes to a head on this one night where paco's trying to commit a drug deal and o'brien decides he's going to step in and steal the money and you know nobody's a good guy in that moment and i think the reason that we see that kid get hit on camera is to really emphasize the point that okay Starting around this point of the movie, O'Brien's going to start to become our protagonist. We want to make sure that nobody's a fan of this guy going in there. Because I think the the kind of the central theme of this movie is you have these two guys go into this terrible situation, both as garbage human beings, and then how do they react coming out of this tragedy? And the O'Brien character eventually starts to somewhat become a better person maybe not doesn't come that far towards becoming a better person and instead Paco heads the exact opposite way where he just gets worse did did either of you find it really really hard to take Alan Ruck seriously as like a bad kid yeah even whenever he's got a gun and he's trying to kill people I'm like bullshit yeah <laughs> the, uh, the funny thing is I didn't even realize that was him but I did remember thinking, like, yeah, this guy's not really a badass. <laughs> and then the credits rolled at the end, and I was like, Alan Ruck. No oh, wonder. Shit. That was him. Alan, Alan Ruck wasn't in this movie. <laughs> he doesn't get much screen time, because he does get killed off pretty early. Yeah. Um, so what did everybody think of Sean Penn in this movie? Because I thought he did a pretty fantastic job. 
Yeah, I, th I think he's really good, especially when you put this in context of it being like, I think it's one year after Fast Times. Yeah. And here he is like, just like, you know, a young up and coming actor being able to pull off those two performances so close together. Um, he's, he's really good at acting with his face. So he doesn't need to say a lot, which is, I think, hard to do. <laughs> I assume, I don't know, I'm not an actor, but it seems hard. And he really does a good job. And for being like a young kid at the time of filming, it's like, I, I he does an excellent performance. Mm -hmm. I, I would say everybody in the movie does really good. The, probably the worst actor in the entire movie is the one who plays, uh, what's it, what's his name, Mukowitz or whatever, Horowitz, Horowitz, Horowitz. Yeah, because he's kind of he's a little over the top at times, but yeah, I think that's also part of the character. He's kind of almost yeah. like Sean Penn's anti-conscience in a way. He's like the little evil voice telling him, you know, you could be king of the prison, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But that's that's his job. And he's also the comic relief in the movie, which is... This movie needs it because it's a pretty serious dark film. Not as right. dark as the other one. But it certainly... It, it needs somebody to, to bring a little bit more of a lighthearted tone to it. Right. So, and, and being the worst actor, he's still good. Yeah. Like, so... Yeah, I think there's a lot of believable emotion on screen in this movie. I think Clancy Brown is really good. Um, in a lot of the movie, he just plays like a bully. We get that scene towards the end where he finds out that his friend has passed away. And I think it's like the look on his face, like where he's, again, it's like that face acting where he's saying things in an angry tone. Like he's telling all the other guys to shut up because they're all laughing about this news story about somebody who died and they don't realize who it is. You can tell he's trying to be a tough guy but he's actually like really hurting because his friend just died and that's very difficult to pull off he's almost having to play two emotions simultaneously yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there can only be one that's true all right um i actually kind of forgot it was sean penn so i mean i feel like that's kind of a compliment to him yeah. in the movie like i just got into the movie and just kind of completely forgot that it was I, shot then he was just o'brien for me i'll tell you what one of the weirdest things is the fact that like so they're trying to kind of play him off as like a tough guy mm. and sean penn just does not especially young sean penn does not come off as tough guy either like no. even even at the point where he beats the holy fuck out of two people with a pillowcase filled with soda cans <laughs> which is pretty dope I yeah. mean that's some that's some good movie violence right there. <laughs> but uh even even after he's done that, I'm still like, bullshit, Sean Penn. Look at your little skinny little arms. <laughs> you couldn't swing them soda cans. Oh. He I mean, yeah, he's certainly not as big as some of the other guys, but yeah, I think he plays it really well. So I just mm -hmm. go with it. Yeah, I mean I don't know if they're trying to play him up as a tough guy or he's trying to play himself up as a tough guy. Cause I feel like, I mean, he's just, he doesn't really want like any part of sort of the social system in there. But when he sees like, of course the Noah's favorite scene where some kid that he came in with gets assaulted by, uh, uh, Clancy Brown's friend. Yeah, and, child rape followed by his immediate murder instead of followed by his immediate yeah, suicide. Yeah. Uh, 
he like doesn't i mean he doesn't even jump in to stop it or anything but then he just waits and he knows they're kind of looking at him and he pretty much just plans a way to attack them without them seeing it coming like no says loads up a pillowcase full of soda cans oh, i fucking love that yeah my whole life, I've been hoping that somebody will sneak up behind me, and I'll have just enough time to get to a soda machine so I can do this. <laughs> I, like, I like I saw this movie when I was a kid, and you know, like, uh, kid, as did I. Yeah, you know, but you don't. The themes and the messages don't really sink in. You just remember oh. moments, and oh my god! Like I used to literally put stuff in, into like sleeping bags and or pillowcases and like tie them around my hand like that and like swinging around the room like oh if this was soda cans I could kill somebody with this but it's just, just one of my stuffed animals from my room so it's not going to do any damage now <laughs> I'm just you know whenever I was a kid I was like mimicking the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Doug I, I wasn't <laughs> weird child prison movies weren't really my oh I, my I, thing that I was trying to imitate <laughs> I don't know how old I was the first time I saw this movie, but not old enough. I shouldn't have been allowed to watch it. <laughs> well, I know I had to be like five or six when I saw this. Now, it was like on a weekend weekend movie type situation on TV. So obviously it was a little bit more sanitized than the un- uncut version. But really the only thing I remembered was the fight from the very end. Because it's a pretty good fight. That's right. It's really, I like I like the fact that there's this thing where uh, uh, Sean Penn's character gets stabbed a couple times in his leg, <laughs> and uh, just the fact that you can tell he just wants to cry, <laughs> and he's trying not to cry in the middle of the fight, which is dumb. You know, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay to cry, buddy. You just got stabbed in the leg. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's just a realistic it's such a realistic uh emotional reaction to like see somebody's face going <laughs> again huge compliments to the actor because unless he really got stabbed i don't know how you make that face okay. <laughs> uh, i don't think it's some other good parts of the movie i mean the whole movies i was surprised movies. i was surprised how good i thought the movie was after watching it I yeah. thought for sure I would watch this and be like, "Yeah, it's a product of the '80s. It is what it is." But I it, feel like it, it's like a really good movie. Yeah, and it's it's a product of the '80s technically, but it is right at the beginning of the '80s. People are still wearing bell bottoms, and the filmmaking style is very reminiscent of '70s filmmaking. Yeah. It's brutal. It's honest. It's in your face. It's dark when it wants to be. It doesn't hold back. The violence, I don't think, is really glorified at any point in the movie. Maybe the pop can scene, you could argue, is you know the, a fun violent scene to watch. But most like that fight scene at the end is effective. Like we said, it's not like you see the guys get stabbed and then we see their face and we see their reactions to what happened. We don't see. It's it's not you know like it's not like a an 80s wrestling match where they're picking each other up and body slamming each other and it's you know we see them tackle to the ground and they're fighting to see who who can get to the weapon first and it's Mm -hmm. i I don't know there's something about the way it's shot and the way the the visuals work that it just feels very real um and very kind of grindhouse and grimy which is i think what they're going for yeah 
I also think the movie, because it has that 70s style, was willing to linger on characters for a while. Mm-hmm. So everything felt just like, I don't know, felt re- a little more real because of that. Like when, so when the, when the rape scene happens and afterwards we see O'Brien in jail and he decides to break out and go for her. And I think there's, there's, it's a lot happens in a very few minutes where they figure out, okay, so Horowitz is going to figure out a way to cut down the gate, which he obviously could have done at any time, but he hasn't done it until his friend needs out to get out there for a reason. I think there's, you know, the chase and stuff is kind of is what it is. It's a little bit of an action sequence, but when the, the guards and stuff go and they park in front of the girlfriend's house and just wait, and we see Sean Penn come running. First of all, we see Sean Penn come running up the street. He's still traveling as fast as he can, even though it's gone from like morning to night. And he's exhausted, clearly. And he just wants to get to his girlfriend so he can check and make sure she's okay. And there's like this really good moment where he bangs on the door. And even the dad, who has hated him this whole time, kind of lets him by. And the guards kind of come strolling up to the house like we know you didn't, this isn't an escape type scenario. This is a kid who's hurting, who just wants to check on his girlfriend and they treat him with that decency that I think we all hope humans have where we're all like, yeah, like just give him this two minutes with her. And then, yeah. Okay. It's your job. You got to pick him up and take him back, but you don't have to be rough with him. You don't have to be violent with him. He's not, he's, he's not an escaped convict. He's a hurting child. And mm-hmm. I think that that really is played very well. There's even when the two like I don't even call them guards, whatever they call them, that walk up to the door and just look at the dad and they like kind of pat the dad on the shoulder and like we got it, yeah. like well don't worry. And it, it, it's really neat moments like that that I think are just if this movie had been made two years later, you know there would have been guys getting shot during that escape sequence and there would have been you know a violent takedown of the guy at the girl's house and whatever. And we didn't we don't need all that. The movie's better as a drama film than it would be as an action film. Yeah, especially that counselor guy that goes after him. Like we see through the movie that he's trying to like like get him to understand like where he's headed. And I feel like that could come off as a little cheesy, but I feel like he they play it pretty well where he is trying to explain to him like cuz he takes him to the actual prison and he basically tells him this is the next step. Like you keep fucking up, this is where you're going to end up. So take it all in. And now let's go back to the juvenile detention center and just try to work on the shit we've been talking about. And I think he's realistic where he's not expecting him to change overnight or even completely change. But I think he's hoping, like, maybe I can get through to him a little bit. But it doesn't come off cheesy like I feel like it would be in most most movies with a situation like that. I love the fact that the big test that they give to him at the end, they're like, all you have to do is just not murder this other guy. <laughs> just don't just don't murder this other guy. That's all. Well, okay, but it, these are like criminals who and I, and I think the key is at the beginning of the movie, he totally would have murdered that other guy. And we do see the Sean Penn character grow as a human being to the point where he just beats that guy to a bloody pulp and then <laughs> drags his body over and drops it in front of the guards, but doesn't stab him, which I think is nice. <laughs> now, there's something about that final shot that I just, I fucking love at the end of that fight where he, 
they all think he's going to stab the guy, and he doesn't. And then he, like I say, drops the body, and he just looks around at like everybody else, and he's just like, "Fuck all of this!" And you just see him limp back to his cell, like, "I'm going to bed now, like leave me alone," kind of thing. And I, yeah, I think it's a really effective moment. I think it's just like that's where we see that he's gone from this guy at the beginning who thought he was untouchable, who thought he could do whatever he wanted and commit whatever crimes he wanted, and he's kind of grown into. Like there's, you could see that there's potential for that guy to become a productive member of society one day if he keeps working at it a lot. Um, whereas I don't think that 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 original character didn't have those redeeming qualities. Well, in the last shot of him walking away is him crying too, which like that's a lot of what the movie's really about. Is well, I was gonna say like the, I love like you were talking about the last shot. Him walking away as he finally starts crying too, which he's been holding off this entire movie. Like, he finally, he like, the because when he finds out about his girlfriend's rape, like, the counselor asks him, like, How, you know, what are you feeling? And he's like, I feel like crying. And he's like, You can cry, like, guys cry, it's all right. But he still walks away without crying. And then finally, at the very end, when everything is finally done, he starts crying as he's walking back to his, to his cell or wherever the fuck he's walking to. <laughs> Is it weird? My big so my big thing at the end of that movie is he's walking back to his cell, and yes, it's all great acting and stuff. And all I'm sitting there thinking is, he's been stabbed in the thigh twice, and there's like a big artery there. He could be bleeding to death. Puncture wounds have the highest rate of infection of any injury. So he's he's just going back to his room to die. And I get that they're like cleaning up and stopping the weird little pseudo fight riot that happened but but somebody needs to go get him and take him to the hospital because he's gonna die i I feel like they were gonna go get him and take him to the hospital oh oh eventually but but those end credits go on for a long time like (laughs) like it's a significant amount of time he's sitting in there possibly bleeding to death i don't think he's bleeding to death because if you hit the major artery with those stab wounds it'd be spurting I don't know. I'm also curious, like, what happened after the movie was over. It's like, does does that counselor guy like vouch for him? Like, look, he was just defending himself, or does he also get in trouble for causing a gigantic fight so he gets like more time added to his sentence? Yeah, I think you have to you have to believe that like they would look at that situation and say not only was he defending himself, but he could have killed the guy and chose not to. So he's clearly learned some kind of life lesson. Mm-hmm. Again, the life lesson is don't murder, which you would hope most people don't need to be taught, but <laughs> it's so basic, really. <laughs> it's really, a lot of us pick up on the don't murder. He's early in life. We kind of glean it from our kindergarten classes or whatever. <laughs> Uh, so would this be a recommend from everybody? Even even Noah's like upset. Yeah, upset I mean it's probably it's probably a good movie. Like I said, I just this uh, it was a first time watch for me, and because I watched Scum first, I couldn't enjoy it. Because <laughs> because basically every bad thing that happened, I was like, ugh, more <laughs> more suffering into this world of endless sorrow. Well, I think I, there's some hope at the end of this one, though. There was a tiny bit of hope. Just a tiny bit. What about you, Doug? Did you are you recommending this movie? Yeah, yeah, this is actually a huge recommend for me. I'm like like I say, I was a fan of it in the eighties because I thought it looked pretty cool when the 
when the guy hit each other, guys hit each other and stuff. But looking at it now, I just think it's it's a really effective dramatic movie. With it uses the violence in a very kind of smart way to as stinger points throughout the movie. The acting's fantastic. The filmmaking's fantastic. I I really think the the themes of like these two different characters reacting to this terrible night in different ways really kind of shine through now that I'm watching it with kind of a, an adult perspective. Uh, I have a lot of respect for this movie. I was very happy that the Kurgan did not rape anybody. <laughs> no, but he, he says watch out for rape. That's, that's yeah. Not- yeah. Which no, that's really bad. But I was, I was, I'll be honest. I was half expecting another scum esque horrible gang situation with him and that other guy and the, the the poor little sad kid. And I was like, no, don't ruin Highlander. I love Highlander so much. Don't take this from me, too. Thanks for calling the Midnight Drive-In. No one is here to take your call. For more info, check out the Midnight Drive-In on Twitter at Pod or find us on Facebook. If you want to email us, send it to the Midnight Drive-In at gmail.com. Remember, no outside food and drink. Anyone caught performing sexual acts at the drive-in will immediately be taken to the office. Unspeakable things will be done to you. Thanks for calling. Alright, so what did everybody watch since last episode? No, do you want to go first? Did you watch like some cartoons or something to cheer yourself up? Nothing. Watch nothing. <laughs> no scared to turn on his TV. I watched Golden Girls. Lots and lots of Golden Girls. And I played a little bit of The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt, and it was very fun. <laughs> That's really it? Yeah. Alright. <laughs> Which episodes of Golden Girls did you watch? I, I don't it, know a lot. Was it, like the, was it like the Christmas one where they get kidnapped by Santa? Because that's what I want to think. You turned on Golden Girls, and that's one that one that showed up. Uh, no, I know one of them's the one where they go to uh, Betty White's character's hometown that's filled with all the stupid oh. people. Oh, yeah. Olaf. Yeah. <laughs> Do they eat cheesecake in the episodes? Every episode. That's right. I, you know what? That's something that I did not remember about that show. And I was like, fuck, they really do eat a lot of cheesecake in that show. Was that like show brought to you by a big cheesecake? Is that what we're to believe? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it was. And, and somehow it's an incredibly progressive and regressive show at the exact same time. Where- yeah, I, know, I noticed that because I've like watched a couple episodes here and there. And I'm like, wow, they like had, they had like episodes talking about like, uh, I don't want to say gay marriage because it really wasn't gay marriage in a sense back then, but just like gay relationships and stuff. They actually like talked about a lot of that stuff way back when that show was on, which I was surprised by. Well, and there's like the episode where, uh, is what the fuck is B. Arthur's fucking Dorothy? Uh, Dorothy. Dorothy's son is bringing over his fiance. Yeah, that's the one I was talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and the whole thing is like Dorothy doesn't want the son to marry her because she's too old, and then the other mom shows up and she doesn't want the mm-hmm. her to marry him because he's white. And but the weird like message at the end of the show is no, it's okay that we're ageist and and judging people and racist. Um, 
but we should just tolerate that because grandchildren. <laughs> and, yeah, you're right. In which, that's not a good message at the end. Like, just the, hey, there's something I want, so I should tolerate other people's happiness to, to a small extent. You know? <laughs> It's a weird, it's a weird thing. It's an extremely realistic view of the world, though. <laughs> I, I, I suppose so, but at the same time, you're kind of like, oh, you guys really shot for the fences on that one. Good job. You know? I guess I, I was thinking of the one uh, Blanche's son comes to visit and then turns out he has a boyfriend. That's the one I was thinking of, but yeah. I have seen that one, too, so <laughs> makes complete sense. Oh, yeah, or the one where Blanche's daughter shows up and she's got the abusive boyfriend and basically they tolerate the abusive boyfriend through the entire episode. Like, it's weird. They just let it happen through the entire thing. You're like, what in the fuck is going on on this show? <laughs> and then they bring it up in a later episode because they're somebody's talking about sticking their nose in their kid's business and she's like, well, don't. You know, I almost lost my daughter over that last one. It's like... Yeah, you finally told her abusive boyfriend to stop abusing her. That wasn't... You didn't interfere. You did the the bare minimum of what a human being should do for another human being. Did you ever see the SNL skit from when they were cosplaying as Golden Girls? I do not recall that. Uh, so it was back when people were trying to, to like, um, do, like, mimic, like, jackass stunts. So they record themselves like almost getting run over by cars because they're fucking morons. And so <laughs> SNL did one where instead of jackass kids were trying to recreate Golden Girls episodes. <laughs> and so these two, like it was all like, I don't know, Tracy Morgan played one of them, which made it hilarious. And then, uh, yeah, they're all sitting around the table and they're eating cheesecake. And then one of them starts choking on the cheesecake and falls over. And then, of course, they play the 911 call and stuff. It's just like this whole like thing trying to compare it to the jackass stuff, which was hilarious. Well, did you watch anything that wasn't Golden Girls, Doug? Uh, a few things. <laughs> so the first thing I watched, um, a movie called The King of Comedy. Have you guys heard of that one? Heard of it, never seen it. Okay, so yeah, it was completely off my radar, but rumor has it that it's a, a major inspiration for the new Joker film, mm-hmm. which after seeing it, I now believe that to be true. <laughs> Uh, so it's a Martin Scorsese film starring Robert De Niro, which is kind of already a compliment. Yeah. Um, basically, De Niro plays this wannabe stand-up comedian who's obsessed with getting on to a late-night talk show. hosted. It's called Jerry, and it's hosted by a guy named Jerry, who's played by a guy named Jerry, <laughs> uh, specifically Jerry Lewis. Um, and the, so the idea is he's, throughout most of the movie, He's just constantly trying to find ways to manipulate his way onto the show. When he manipulates his way into a, a limo with Jerry, he keeps getting eventually told, like, keeps getting basically told to go away, and he refuses to. And as the movie progresses, we start to see more and more that uh, this De Niro character is something's wrong with this dude, right? Like, and as he goes home, we see him like. We, like, you know, he says he's a stand-up comic, but first we find out, well, he really has never actually performed anywhere. So he thinks his first major performance should be on a late-night talk show. Um, and 
eventually he's performing alone in his basement in front of a picture of people that he has up on the wall. <laughs> and he's got a talk show set up in his basement like he's Kramer from that episode of Seinfeld. Um, <laughs> but you start to realize like maybe he believed like he's having these imaginary conversations with this Jerry character the whole time and it gets really questionable which of these he believes are real and which of these he understands are in his mind. Uh, so of course it's it's De Niro and it's like you know the eighties I forget year eighty eighty two ish. Um, so it's like he's really good at portraying this character, um, and it, it kind of ends with him kidnapping the Jerry Lewis character and basically holding him hostage to get put on the show and I, 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 like I'm full spoiler alert for this movie because it came out in 82 but conceptually he goes out thinking like if I can just get on the show and just do my stand up then I'll become this the, he, the new king of comedy he gets on the show the stand up sucks but after serving his time in prison he gets a book deal and then he starts getting booked on as a comedian because now he's famous for having committed this crime that's basically the end of the movie in a nutshell. Um, the whole thing is basically one giant comment on the obsession with fame. Uh, so luckily, Martin Scorsese taught us all an important lesson back in 1982, and now nobody's obsessed with becoming famous and doing stupid things to get famous anymore, and as a society, we no longer reward people for shitty behavior that they do just to draw attention to themselves, and we all learned our lesson and we can move on. Right, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It was. I got to tell you, like watching this movie now, the thing that stuck out to me: the performances are good. I'm really shocked. I don't really know Jerry Lewis at all as an actor. I know him as like the telethon guy, and he's fantastic in the movie as an actor. And I don't know if that's because he's a good actor or if this is his only good performance. But I'm actually tempted to seek out other things he's done and see if he was at, did any other good dramatic roles. You know, uh, the filmmakings, it's set in New York and it's a Martin Scorsese film in the 80s, so it looks really cool. And um, there's some funny stuff in it. But the big thing is you're watching this movie going, like, oh shit, this movie would just be about Instagram now, right? <laughs> this would be like in the 80s, it was everybody was, do, was doing everything they could because they wanted to get on the Carson show. And, that, and then we were rewarded people who did stupid shit trying to prove how important they were. And then in like the 90s, it became the jackass stunts of just. And see if you can hurt yourself and put it on YouTube and uh, we'll see how that goes and see if you can get famous doing that. And now it's whatever else is taken over from that. And it's just like, oh yeah, we didn't, we never learned this lesson at all as a society. It's fucking weird to know that you, like some, some people have been trying to warn us about this shit that far back. And, no, we, we're not going to learn the lesson apparently. So, no. uh, yeah, as far as like, just because the reason I watched it was because the rumor is it's going to have a major influence on that upcoming Joker movie. I can totally see yeah. that. Um, it's, yeah, I can totally see that. The idea of an unstable character whose dream is to get on this talk show and when he finally mm -hmm. gets on it doesn't go as planned. I can see that going in a, a very interesting direction when yeah. they make that character into the Joker. So, Well, I haven't heard a lot of people talking about it, but Scorsese's on the Joker as a producer. Yeah. Which is fascinating. I still don't think that movie looks good in what I want in a Joker movie, but I'm sure I'll probably end up watching it. But. See, I think it looks good. I can completely understand people saying it, 
it's not what they want in a Joker movie. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's if it's not what you want, it's not what you want. Yeah, but no, I get it. I just like the day the the trailer came out, everybody was like freaking out about it, and I'm just like, I don't, I don't think I want to see that movie. So I was confused, but. I'm also the first to admit that it may end up being amazing. I don't know. I thought Heath Ledger as the Joker was going to be the dumbest thing ever. and He basically embodied everything that I kind of uh, think about as the Joker. So what the fuck do I know? Yeah, um, <laughs> so, yeah I mean, I, I'm taking a wait-and-see approach with this Joker movie. I don't know. So... It's also yeah. weird that it's developed. It's being directed by like Todd Phillips, who yeah. I only know from comedy, really. And I'm like, okay, let's see how this goes. But it might yeah. be good. Who knows? So, anyways, we're gonna end up going on tangents about the Joker movie every week from now until it comes to <laughs> save our, save save a couple of thoughts for next week when it accidentally gets brought up. Uh, but King of Comedy is probably a recommend if you. Again, I think it's one of those ones, like, if you're a Scorsese fan, you'll like it. If you like De Niro's performances from back then. I'm not going to try to convince people to like modern-day De Niro, but certainly mm-hmm. 1980s De Niro is quite good. Yeah. Um, he has a mustache in this movie, if that makes people want to see it more. <laughs> <laughs> I know it would, would have been a selling feature for me had I bothered to check if he had a mustache before I watched it. So. But De Niro with a mustache? I must watch it. I know. If I'd known that, I would have seen it years ago. Uh, the next thing I saw is the uh, Pet Cemetery remake. Have either of you guys seen that yet? No. All right, well, don't. Um, <laughs> but it's got John Lithgow in it. Yeah, and he he's extremely mediocre in it, which is really upsetting to me because I think he, there's so much potential to... He has so much potential in that role to take it and make it into something great. And they just have him repeating lines from the previous movie and they really just don't the movie just feels like it's so chopped together and rushed like they were just making it like like fucking solo that's what it reminds me of it's like they're just trying to hit all the beats and hit all the notes instead of taking the time to develop the characters and develop the relationships and like there's supposed to be a whole thing in this remake where so it's not a spoiler because it's in the trailers but Ellie is the one that dies in this movie and instead of Gage she's the first one that's brought back and there's supposed to be a whole thing where Ellie and Judd have had this like friendship going on for a while and that that's why he ends up and that's why he it, it leads into the whole like okay it's hard to explain because it's Pet Cemetery and it's a <laughs> fucked up story but you know like it's did did she die partly because of her friendship with him and because he's the one that introduced the dad to the graveyard and et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? Like, did the whatever weird forces that be cause her death as a result of his involvement so that she would end up being brought back? And But, and, and also, like, you know, just because he's got a friendship with her, that's why he's willing to help bring the cat back. It's just so she won't suffer. And all, all those different stages, right? The problem is that they don't, they get like a couple of scenes together of like, you know, she sneaks into his house to bring him cookies one day and he gets upset that she's in the house, but then he's not upset because she's being nice to him. And then 
he goes to their house one night for dinner and she dances in a ballerina outfit and then that's fucking it because they're just hitting the notes they're not telling a story um it's really really frustrating like it's funny it's like it's a longer movie but it still feels like it's really rushed and er almost every scene feels like it was forced in and unnecessary um like the whole gauge character probably doesn't need to be in this movie but they just have him in there because they're like, well, there was a gauge in the original, so you got to put the gauge in here. Uh, you know, same thing with like all. There's a, it's it's different from the first movie, but there is a whole Zelda thing that goes on, and it's like, it's completely irrelevant to the plot. Whereas if you, like in the book, all that stuff mattered because it fed into the way the mother reacted to death and it helped explain. It was basically a whole backstory for that mother character, for the racial character. And in, it was a problem in the first Pet Cemetery movie. It's a way bigger problem in this one where it's just, they're just trying to add some scary stuff in. And it's not that well executed, so who, why would they add it in? It's really actually, I would say, almost laughable how it happens in, in uh, this movie version. So can I spoil it? Because I don't really care. Okay, so I don't care. All right, so they the whole Zelda thing, the way Zelda dies in this version of the story, is that uh, Rachel is supposed to be bringing her her lunch. She does not. Uh, she doesn't like going up there because Zelda's all creepy and weird. So she tries to send the lunch up through a dumb waiter that doesn't work. And Zelda falls down the dumbwaiter elevator shaft. <laughs> That's an appropriate reaction, Brian. That's stupid. And there's like a big jump scare where the body falls down and stuff. And the jump scare is pretty effective, but then you're going, did that person just die by falling down a dumbwaiter elevator shaft? And do you, would you die if you only fell one story? Like, that doesn't even really make sense, right? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> so, like, and I mean, just we don't see her fall into the shaft. We only see her land. So the, the, it raises the question. I, another podcast I was listening to was like, how does that logistically work? Like, did she lean in to get her lunch and then just like lean way too far? And because her back is not straight, she couldn't stand back up. Or how would you end up falling? It doesn't really make sense. But that's the that's where we're at with this movie and. It's just, now I'm going to rant now because now I'm getting myself started. Um, <laughs> so, so there's that element of it. And then, okay, so in the trailers, we find out Ellie's the one that dies, right? Now, originally, that was enough where I'm like, if they're just doing that to try to prove how smart they are and to do twists, I don't even know if I want to see this movie. But I listened to an interview with the filmmakers on Shockwaves. Which is so technically it's your fault. I watched this, Brian. You're always telling me to listen to that podcast. <laughs> Which I still have. I still have half the interview to listen to because because so, I, I uh, paused it because they were going to talk spoilers. But yeah. as things have gone on, I'm just like I don't. I don't think I care if I'm going to get so, some spoiled for it. But, but in that interview, they said, "Look, it's not a twist that Ellie dies. We don't. It's not. It's not some big." It's not meant to be a big shock or turning point because people are expecting Gage to die and then Ellie dies. It's just that by having that character be the one that dies, she's an older actress. When we bring her back, there are things we can do 
because when when the character comes back in the book, they they can speak and they can express themselves and they can explore ideas, which you couldn't really do with a toddler actor. And so we basically just had her die for the sake of being able to do some of the things we wanted to do. We needed it to be the older character. And I'm like, okay, that makes complete sense to me. And I'm curious now about the things that they want to do with this character after they come back from the dead that are so interesting and unique that you need someone who's older and can take better acting direction and speak better. Um, I want to know where that's headed now. And then the fucking scene comes where she's going to die. And you, you know, if you know the story, you know, she's going to die in this moment Mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, but they fucking tease it. Like gauge is going to die. And then the last second it's her that goes instead of him. You're like, fuck off. You said it's not a twist, but you're treating it like it's a twist now in the fucking movie. So if it's a twist, why was it spoiled in the fucking trailers then? Yeah, that's what I always wondered. Like, I'm just like, if if you're going to change it that drastically, then why even show it on the trailer? Like, and then, like you said, if they're going to tease it in the movie, they're like, uh, 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 oh, we fooled you. It's like, what's your point? And they and they do the same thing a couple of other times where they're like, remember that scene from the original? It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. Oh, it happened a little different, just to prove that we know. Like, and it's like if you, I understand like when you're making a a, a remake of a movie that you're gonna maybe pay tribute to the original by having some of the same musical cues or or whatever, right? Like, yeah. I, I completely understand that, but don't fucking like tease it. And like I, I don't even know how those scenes would play if you'd never seen the original movie, because they do the same thing with like the uh, with Judd getting his like the, his uh, whatever you call it tendon cut, his like Achilles tendon or whatever cut. They tease it like it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen, and then he kicks the bed out of the way, and it, oh, she wasn't under the bed like the kid was in the first movie. Well, if you hadn't seen the first movie, I don't know why that scene would be even remotely interesting to you, because <laughs> it's just a bunch of shots of his feet from under the bed, and you're like, well. And it's again at that point, it's like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, like a remake isn't supposed to be designed to, to play with your expectations from having seen the first movie. It's supposed to be a retelling of the same story. Yeah, and it's just it's just frustrating. Um, all right, we're in full spoiler territory now because I got to keep bitching though. <laughs> okay. But so okay, so then the whole thing with having Ellie die and her be the one that comes back. When she comes back, she knows that she died. She knows that her soul went somewhere else and was brought back. And we've already had the the discussion that happens in the book and in the first movie where the two parents are arguing about whether there's an afterlife. And the dad is saying, like, he doesn't really believe in an afterlife. And then you've got his daughter resurrected from the grave she's still got like these like staple things in the back of her head from being autopsied or whatever and she looks at him and she's like so you you brought me back and he's like yeah and she's like back from where and it's like oh that is a really fucking cool idea like to have this character who's come back from the dead that knows she's back but doesn't understand this is my weekly reference this is what they did in Buffy where they had Buffy come back and everybody <laughs> thought they saved her from hell, but it turns out to be a different story. Cool idea. Let's explore that. No. Now uh, then like two minutes later, Judd sees her out a window. So she's like, Oh, Judd knows I'm back. I guess I got to go kill him. And we jump into our climax. And it's like, no, like 
they should have taken the time to explore that and to have these characters dealing with this. This character who didn't believe in an afterlife is suddenly being posed with the question, if there's no afterlife, where did I come back from, Dad? That's a great fucking question to ask a guy who doesn't believe in the afterlife. You know, give him, give him a tan- chance to deal with that and try to come up with an answer, but they don't. And it's just, it's frustrating. The ideas are good. Like, the idea that when he brings her back, we actually get scenes of him, like, washing her up. And then we get scenes of, like, them interacting. And he, like, he puts her to bed the night that she comes back from the dead. And she's like, can you lay in the bed with me? And he's like, yeah, I guess. Like, I can understand why this is probably traumatic for you. I hadn't thought of that until now kind of thing. And he, like, he's like so he ends up going to bed with his daughter. And when he wakes up in the morning, she's, like, freaking out. And she's put back on the dress that she was buried in and stuff. And I'm like, this is interesting ideas. Explore them now. But they don't. And it's like, what the f- why, then why do it? Then if you're just going to, then just make a shot for shot remake of the original if you're not going to explore the new ideas that you've had. Yeah. Very frustrating to me. Yeah, especially it's in the book, in the first movie, it's always assumed that they're, they're like, the person doesn't come back. Like their body comes back with something different inside of it. Yeah. So, yeah, something. So it's just it's just frustrating because like again it's it's a neat idea, and then okay, now we're even deeper into spoiler territory. <laughs> so then like, the mom shows up right as expected. Mm-hmm. Um, poor little Gage gets locked in a car. <laughs> like you st- you stay here. We have a climax to endure. Yeah, and he's like okay, <laughs> um, and so he the mom ends up being killed. We see Ellie dragging her mom to the burial ground, which makes logistically just no sense because there's no way that that little kid dragged that body up and over the like, and they've got the big like pile the, of brush or whatever. The deadfall. Yeah. So that's there's no way that that kid carried that carried an adult body over there, mm-hmm. especially since we see her dragging the body, so we know it's not like superhuman strength or anything. But put the logistics aside. <laughs> turns out that they're trying to, like, the little girl decides to kill her mom and bring her back, and then they're going to kill the dad and bring him back, and then the plan is to kill, like, like they're trying to create a zombie family? What? Yeah, because I guess my question, yeah, my question of that then is if if they die, and then they're the ones who actually come back, like, they've made it seem, then what's the fucking point? Yeah. So like that—that's the weird like new ending that they've had is this idea that they're gonna like, like by I don't and it's not again it's not explained in the movie, but it seems like Ellie just wants her family to be zombies too because if, if I'm gonna be a zombie you should all be zombies. So one by one they're killing them off, then they chicken shit out and they don't kill off Gage on screen. The movie kind of ends with the whole zombie like so you've got zombie mom dad and kid have gone and burned judd's house down and they're walking towards the car to get gage and the cat is sitting on the hood of the car waiting for them to get there and that's the end of the movie Ugh, the, horrible. Impl- the implication is that i guess they kill gage and turn him into a zombie too but i don't i don't care i tell you gage shouldn't have been in the movie at all because there's all it does by having him there, he serves really no point plot wise. There's one really good moment where the Pascal ghost actually appears to Gage in his, uh, like while he's in his crib, and the 
I don't know how they, I don't know what they did to this poor toddler, but the toddler gets this like scared look on his face, and I'm like, oh, like that's really good acting from that kid. Kids can't act like that. I, I don't know what like weird mask they showed him off camera, <laughs> but. I mean, so there are a couple of good, like, yeah, and there's a couple of good moments like that in the movie, but it's just, I don't know. Like it, it was soulless. That's that's the best way I can describe it. It's just, there's, none of the people felt like they belonged in a Like, none of the characters felt like they were interacting with other family members. It felt like actors reading lines to each other. It, like, there's... Like there's supposed to be a friendship between the doctor and Judd, but there really isn't. Mm-hmm. Like the Pascal character just feels like they just went out and got an actor and told him, like, go watch that other movie and then come and do a shitty version of that. You know, it's like when wrestlers when they reuse gimmicks and then they <laughs> get somebody who's not as good to redo the same gimmick, and you're like, I can see what you're doing here, so don't. <laughs> it's, yeah, it was pretty frustrating. I get it. like the more I think about it, the more I dislike it. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. just you know, that's a bummer. It it really is because there's a lot of potential there, and there are some good ideas. Um, you know, there and actually, I'll say this: like the little girl and I think the mom both do really good acting jobs in the movie. Um, so like, I think they they deserved a better movie, given the performance that they give. Um, and like I say, I think you know, I think the Judd character is just wasted. Um, there's so much potential there for that character and that actor, and they just don't use it. Yeah, well, that's a bummer. So I don't know. Because I think Pet Cemetery is probably in contention for my favorite Stephen King book. Because the yeah. actual book is just fantastic. But I haven't read it in a long time, mm-hmm. and maybe I should reread it. But I remember being scared while reading. And that is a really rare thing for me when it comes to like books. They don't have that impact on me. Yeah. So it's yeah, and and I think again, like you can tell you can tell variations on the story if you want. Like I didn't mind the changes that they made. It was just it was the execution. I got into a debate about this. I know there are other people out there, one of whom is listening, that uh, feels that the. The changes were Ill, were well executed but ill conceived, and I, I pretty much feel the opposite. I'm like, I don't mind the changes; I just think they were executed poorly. I think the film was just—it was all about paint by numbers. Like, make sure you hit all the plot points from the original movie, tick, 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 all in a row until you get to the end, and then we don't have time to explore our new ideas. Uh, so why not? Again, why not get rid of the Zelda stuff if you're going to do a silly fall down the elevator shaft gag? Get rid of that, and have more time for you know this Ellie character who's returned from the dead to interact with her father and give her time to develop from okay I'm back and I'm confused and scared to I become homicidal like give make make a step there. Yeah, that, that could be very interesting, right? Like, but they don't do it, so if a failed <sighs> opportunity. And I'm, I'm more angry about it now than I was the day I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sucks. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have to say anything more about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
so the, the other thing I watched, which I'm pretty sure we'll be able to discuss, uh, is I got into Dark Side of the Ring, which is mm-hmm. the series that you brought up on last week's podcast, uh, yeah. kind of behind the scenes of some of the dark stories of pro wrestling. Yeah. Uh, so I've now seen all three episodes that are available. As have I. All right. So what do you think? Um, I think it's well made. I think it's pretty interesting as far as a docuseries goes. They get a lot of big names. Yeah. Um, they are tackling, like right off the bat, they're tackling some stories that are well known, but they're also diving into some pretty dark stuff. Like the, the Macho Man Miss Elizabeth stuff, all of that happened in an era before the internet. So, like, I didn't know that Miss Elizabeth and Lex Luger were holed up in hotel rooms doing drugs. And and I'm not sure if I ever wanted to know that, but it's certainly interesting. Um, It's an interesting and well-told story. Yeah, I knew that was going on when it happened. And that's what made it even worse. I was just like, oh, she died of a drug overdose. I know that she was with fucking Lex Luger. So I was like kind of anti-Lex Luger for a long time after that. It's which really they interesting. Do, which they do bring up in the documentary. Yeah, like several characters say that. I think it's really interesting how honest everyone is being. Mm-hmm. Um, most stuff that involves the wrestling industry, people can't help but fall into like making it into like a bit of a gimmick thing. And hey, like if I say the right thing in this documentary, we might be able to get a a storyline out of this in the, in the ring later. <laughs> there seems to be a very honest approach to this. Guys like Eric Bischoff are just on there. And like he's say he's one of the guys that's like for a long time he just hated Luger because everyone liked Miss Elizabeth and look what happened to her. Yeah. Um so I thought that was good and that was like good. That, I just don't know if it was as controversial as I thought it was gonna be for a documentary called The Dark Side of the Ring. No, no it, since you didn't know about her and Lex Luger and that whole situation, maybe that works better. Yeah, for you for me, it just played off like these two were married. Uh, they both got really stressed out about work. They got a divorce, and then they both separately died in strange ways. It was a little weird that they kind of played up the fact that they both died, and it's like, well, he had like a heart attack while driving. She dried up a drug over drug overdose. There's no connection at all. I thought yeah. that was a little bit interesting that they played that up. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'd been divorced for years at that point. Uh, I do think, uh, yeah, like it, it's. I don't think it's controversial. I think some of the portrayal of Macho Man. I, I and again, there's no way for me to know how accurate this is, but they don't make him seem like a particularly good guy. He's very controlling and possessive of his wife, which is yeah. Again, maybe it's a traditionally macho way to be that doesn't seem right anymore in our modern society, but it's very strange. It's very odd, yeah. But the real interesting story is the Bruiser Brody one, which is the one that you and I both watched immediately after finishing the <laughs> podcast last week because yeah. we were both like, oh, we're done podcasting a bit earlier than usual. And the next thing I know, we're messaging each other back and forth going, are you watching this? <laughs> yes, I am. This is fucked, right? That's pretty fucked. I mean, I, I've heard of Bruiser Brody. I didn't know a whole lot about him. And all I knew was he was wrestling, I thought, down in Mexico. They say in Puerto Rico. 
and he got stabbed and killed in a backstage at a wrestling show. So that's all I knew. And then watching this and seeing everything that led up to it, it's just like, holy fuck, like, this shit's crazy. It's, it's nuts. And, like, the fact that, like, so many people were clearly involved in, like, a cover-up and the police were clearly... I, they don't get into it, but I, I take it as the police were just like, oh, this guy's famous enough, this wrestler's famous enough that we're going to ignore the fact that he committed a murder. Like, that's mm-hmm. the impression I get of it. Um, you know, it's hard to say what goes on in people's brains, but when you hear, like, wrestlers that were, like, in the room say, like, yeah, I gave all my information to the cops, and then I saw on the news that the trial had already happened and no one called me and asked me to testify. It's like, why not? Like, why, yeah. weren't, they, why weren't they interested in putting this particular murderer in jail? Because it certainly seems they were, like, they were just willing to accept whatever story they got just to yeah. move on. Yeah, it was a very odd story. Yeah. I mean, the big, one of the main characters, wow, was it Tony Atlas that was like the main guy that yeah. kept talking? Like, one of the things about, I'd read parts of the story before, but watching him tell the story is like, you can look at that and go, okay, there's a guy, I wasn't in the room, I won't tell you what happened, but I can tell you that that guy 100% believes everything he says in that documentary. Mm-hmm. He is looking in the camera and he's saying, like, he's telling you the truth about the day his friend died. Um, and, you know, it's at least he believes that to be the truth. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty fucked up. Yeah. You know, it, it, if you believe his story, somebody walked up and stabbed a dude and they're saying, like, well, could it have been self defense? No, they had a confrontation previous and we don't know exactly what happened in that confrontation. But that was over, and he came over to him and stabbed him to death and in front of a bunch of witnesses, and nobody seems to care and want to put a stop to it. And there were some big names in pro wrestling in the arena <laughs> that day. Like, Yeah, it's interesting, like the Abdullah the Butcher guy. Yeah. Yeah, because like Tony Atlas's story involves like Abdullah the Butcher at least being aware of what had happened and having like a meeting with all the wrestlers and talking about it and all this stuff. And then you talk to this Abdullah guy and it's just like, no, that never happened. And it's just like, what? And then they tell Tony Atlas, well, he said it never happened. He's like, well, that is, that is a motherfucking lie is what that is. Yeah. Like he's, he's adamant about it. And you know, it was a long time ago. This happened in the late eighties. And so it's for him to be that adamant about it. Still, it's obviously that he feels strongly about it. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a it's not a gimmick for him. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy because they kind of go like they kind of just break down the whole day. Like there's people that were there at the arena, and they kind of break down. Okay, this is this is where my day started. This is when I showed up at the arena. This is when I heard this, and this happened here. So yeah, it's interesting. We kind of go beat by beat kind of see what everybody's reaction was it's fucking weird man it's and like i think this is something i said to you when we were messaging it's like wait a minute like this was like 88 it's like (laughs) what is that like that's like wrestlemania 4 like that's the where like the the controversy in like mainstream wrestling that was on tv that we all knew about at the time was like hogan and andre both hit each other with chairs during that tournament (laughs) got eliminated and it was like you know what i mean and then it's like oh but 
down in Puerto Rico, a dude gets stabbed in the locker room, and we just didn't <laughs> know about it because he wasn't his contract wasn't with WWF. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, that's one of the, it's one of those weird things. It's like if you grow up on WWF only, then that's the kind of shit you get, and then you become an adult, still a fan of wrestling, and you learn about Bruiser Brody, and you're like, this this is happening at the same time. It doesn't make any sense. Even watching the footage of like his matches and seeing like the amount of blood that there was and the fact that they'd go into the crowd on a regular basis, it seems. Mm. He's swinging this big chain over his head like out in the crowd, and you're like, oh, that's where ECW got the idea, I guess. <laughs> I, like, I didn't know about any of that stuff. It's super weird. And that, like, I don't know, pro wrestling, but the behind-the-scenes stuff, like looking at it now as an adult is like, way more interesting than what happens on oh, TV. Yeah. And it's like, I can't believe this shit was going on at, the, at that time. Mm-hmm. It's super weird. Yeah, know. and there was still just sort of the weird mystique about it, too, because they show, like, Bruiser Brody like at a TV station doing an interview, and he doesn't realize that they had, it was like a pre-taped interview, and he doesn't realize they started recording it. So he's telling the anchor like all this stuff about his personal life about playing like football and stuff and what his uh like what his real name is and like all this stuff and then uh, when he finds out that they've been recording the whole time he kind of gets a little i mean he doesn't get like mad but he kind of gets like oh shit like i just need assurance that you're not gonna say what my real name is and like all this stuff yeah and they're like oh yeah yeah that's not a problem like you know We'll take care of that. It's so, yeah, it's, it's, still, still worrying about kayfabe, but you know, get stabbed in a dressing room. It's so weird. And I, I forgot. It wasn't actually until I watched the the Bret Hart episode of the show where I remembered mm-hmm. that, like, it was ninety seven or whatever when wrestlers first like went on TV and spoke openly about the fact that <laughs> wrestling wasn't a. a isn't a combat sport. It's a it's a show, and it's like it's so weird that people believed that until then. And I don't, yeah, or at least they kept up the illusion. I find yeah. it very strange. Yeah, yeah, because we believe that a, a a garbage man would moonlight as a wrestler, a professional wrestler too, like in the case of Duke the Dumpster Drosy. Well, weirdly enough, like that's fully believable. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know for a fact that Kamala was a truck driver who also wrestled on weekends. So <laughs> that wasn't his gimmick. That was just he needed a day job. It didn't pay that well to wrestle in the eighties. Um, yeah, it's it's super weird to like learn about this stuff now and be like, oh, like I was a kid, I was watching wrestling every week. Like it was a thing, mm-hmm. and I had no idea that there was this whole other world behind it. Yeah, yeah, and I would say Bru- the Bruiser Brody one was probably the best episode they've had so far. Yeah, for sure. Uh, did you get anything out of the the Bret Hart one? Um, not a lot. I found it. I think they did a good job. If you aren't a, if you weren't a fan of wrestling at the time and you weren't watching all of the all of the Bret Hart appearances on Off the Record and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they did a good job of explaining the way Bret Hart was just the old school of wrestling and he came crashing head on into the new school. And it, you know, 
like he he's sitting there talking about how everybody should be treated with respect and dignity and this is like a year before the attitude era kicks off like <laughs> yeah no that's not what's coming next buddy um you know and then i think that was good i thought like some of the other stuff that they got into outside of the actual screw job incident was pretty interesting like I didn't know Vince Russo and Jim Cornette hated each other, and I didn't know I would care about the fact that they hated each other until watching them talk about each other. And I'm like, oh, that's great. I could listen to those two badmouth each other all day, every day. And those are, that's not like that's not an on-screen like rivalry. That's just two fucking guys who work together that never got along, and now they're allowed to talk about it publicly. So, yeah, I, I thought that stuff was good. Yeah, I didn't even know they were remotely involved. If they even are, because I mean, both of them are horrible, it's weird how, horrible like, liars. So, yeah, yeah, um, and it's weird how like different people are almost wanting to take credit for the screw job, even though nobody thinks it was the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah, because the story I'd always heard, because you know they sort of teased it before the commercial break, they're like, but the true architect of the screw job had not yet been revealed. And so I looked at Amanda and I was like, oh, do you know who the architect was? Because I do. And it turns out, according to this documentary, I apparently didn't. Who did, who did you think it was? Well, because I had always heard that uh, they were, Vince was talking with Sean about, okay, well, Red doesn't want to drop the title, kind of going back and forth, trying to figure out what they're going to do. And then Triple H was in the room and Triple H said, finally, like after they sort of exhausted all ideas, he just said, well... Fuck him. If he's not going to do business, we'll do business for him. And that basically insinuated, yeah, we'll just take the belt off of him. Yeah, that wasn't even remotely addressed in this. This, yeah, this, I found Triple H's absence from this very conspicuous. I wonder if there's a reason for that. He is a very powerful industry figure right now and has been for a long time. And I think that maybe he uh, gets himself left out of these things. I'm not sure, but. Yeah, I don't know. It's I mean they kinda badmouth Vince a lot. You would think he would be yeah, But Vince doesn't mind being badmouthed. <laughs> I was gonna say, and Vince kind of makes a living off of being the bad guy. Yeah. Well oh yeah, they definitely talk about that in this this one too. Cause this essentially is what made the evil Mr. McMahon character was the yeah. fallout of the Montreal screw job. Yeah. And I mean like it, in the interest of fairness, all this debate about Vince McMahon is 100% responsible for what happened that night. Like you, mm-hmm. you can choose to not care about it because it's wrestling, which is a perfectly reasonable stance. It's almost impossible to argue that Bret Hart was completely wrong. It's very easy to say Vince McMahon could have just had him drop the belt to somebody else. He could have done any number of things, and he chose to really do something terrible to somebody who had been dedicated to the business for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, and you know, they one one of the lines that is dropped in this is they just say like, yeah, um, ev- the lunch schedule gets run by Vince McMahon, so <laughs> it's not like, yeah. regardless of whatever else, he made the final decision. So it doesn't really matter who suggested it; the decision mm-hmm. made with Vince. I, uh, you know, yeah, they do talk uh, sort of the. Uh conspiracy theory that the whole thing was set up and scott hall apparently is a big proponent of that yeah i don't first of all obviously it 
wasn't because Brett legitimately left and went to WCW. What do mm. they do? They think Brett went there and like intentionally didn't get over in WCW because he. What was the plan there? That doesn't make any sense. It's one of those conspiracy theories where you're like it falls apart because. So you're telling me that Brett and Sean and Vince were all in on this plan to do what? Well, there was talk that Brett was specifically sent by Vince McMahon to ruin WCW. You think that? Yeah. <laughs> but I think they did a pretty good job of it themselves. Yeah. So. yeah. Uh, it doesn't make any sense that Brett, Brett went over there and did what to ruin WCW. Yeah. Brett got kicked in the head by Goldberg, who was the guy that didn't really know how to wrestle so that he could have a concussion. And therefore, WCW would have to pay him, but no one couldn't be on TV. That was all his plan. That doesn't make any fucking sense. No. I was going to say, uh, the British Bulldog landing on that fucking metal trap door they decided to put in the middle of the ring. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was all part of the plan. Yeah. But I'll, I'll just say this, having watched the documentary, I don't fucking believe for a second that Scott Hall believes that either. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't know so if either. there are other people who believe it or not, but there's no chance that Scott Hall believes it. <laughs> He's not that good of an actor. <laughs> right through the documentary. Uh... The one thing I was disappointed, I mean, I pretty much knew everything except for the Jim Cornette, Vince Russo stuff. Um, I was disappointed they didn't really talk about, because I'd always heard that Brett always felt like if he didn't leave, which I don't know how that situation would have worked, maybe he would have taken a cut in pay or something instead of having to leave, but I don't, I don't know how that would have worked. But he always felt like if he hadn't have left for WCW, that um, he doesn't think Owen would have been put in a situation where he was doing this stupid gimmick of rappelling down from the ceiling yeah. so that he may not have died. And then, of course, Brett yeah. doesn't get kicked in the head by Goldberg, so he doesn't have a massive concussion that makes him retire and thus also may have somewhat contributed to him having a stroke later on in life. I'm sure it did, yeah. So I was just I was hoping they were gonna maybe touch on that kind of stuff, but Yeah. It literally just sort of ended after talking about how everything fell apart in WCW. It's it's so hard to talk about like the Owen stuff though, because like everyone wants to make Vince McMahon to be the asshole in that situation. Mm-hmm. Like it's a stunt that happened a lot in wrestling at the time, guys coming down from the ceiling on a wire mm-hmm. and it went wrong. So, like, yeah, you could argue, like, part of why Owen was doing this ridiculous comical gimmick was because Vince was trying to get back at anybody who was associated with, with Bret Hart. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lord knows he, held, he went out of his way to try and make a fool out of all those guys at different times and wouldn't yeah. let them just end their contracts and walk away, which is what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So you, can see, you could argue that, but you could also argue, like, shit happens when you you know when you if you're if you're a stuntman uh, a certain number of stuntmen on movie scenes died as i make the always make the director an asshole like a lot of times it doesn't a lot of times it's just you were doing everything you were you were in a job where you knew there was a risk you took the risk and yeah it's yeah it is it was just like a perfect storm of events that caused it to happen but he thought maybe he would he could have kept him out of because he's doing that blue blazer thing yeah. or something, which was a yeah. persona that he wrestled under on the indies or something. Yeah, yeah and it's it was yeah, 
they were they were making fun of Owen Hart is what they were doing yeah by making him do this ridiculous gimmick and Brett's probably like there's the the survivor's guilt makes sense in those circumstances because he probably does know that you know if he'd only if he'd agreed to only make seven hundred and fifty thousand a year um he pr- oh and never would have been in that situation because the heart foundation still would have been together as like a gimmick or whatever mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, how the fuck do you predict that yeah that's the one thing that they never like really get into in any of these documentaries is okay like so wcw is offering brett big money mm-hmm. three million dollars three million vince is he's willing to stay at 1.5 and then the, the talk from both sides is like basically he let vince just told brett like we're not paying you this anymore so we're done it's like well why couldn't they negotiate this? Like, if you were willing to go from three million down to one point five to stay, mm-hmm. could you go down to one? Where, like, where's the number where it would have made sense to keep them and just stay? I've never like that's just me. I'm just curious about that contract negotiation. Yeah. Where I'm like, I, I really want to know like why they couldn't work something out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Wish there. That was still a weird time too. Anyway, so maybe that was part of it. Where, like, uh, I mean, the reason Kevin Nash and Scott Hall left is because they were given guaranteed money from WCW. And they even went to Vince McMahon and told him, like, look, we'll stay. You just got to match this offer. And Vince's response was, oh, I can't do it because if I do it for you, I have to do it for everybody. Because there was no guaranteed contracts at the time. Well, yeah, and the whole, the treatment of wrestlers, John Oliver just did a big thing on it, which Mm -hmm. is weird to me that John Oliver did a thing on it, but... (laughs) Like wrestlers are not treated well. They've never been treated well. Um, these are people who, you know, if you if you read autobiographies of professional wrestlers, there's guys who are like putting literally putting their lives on their line like five nights a week, and then they're just like, oh, you're injured and your contract's up. Well, I guess we just won't renew that contract. Call us when you're not injured anymore. And yeah. it's like, but I'm injured because I never mind. Like no one cares. It's. It's not a healthy industry to be involved in. If you're no, it's better, but it's still not great. Yeah, and you know, I think it started to get better when Eddie Guerrero and um, Chris Benoit died in the same year, and they're like, oh, yeah. can't have that happening." No. But how many guys? Anytime you hear about the, the 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 big names that suffered as a result of what went on in that industry, you always think how many little guys suffered so much worse, and we never heard about it. Yeah. Anyways, we just went on wrestling rant there for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> the docu-series that we're supposed to be talking about is actually quite good if people are interested in the subject yeah. matter. And if, even if you're not a wrestling fan, I think the behind-the-scenes stuff in wrestling is always more interesting yeah. than what's on TV. It has been that way for a long time. I am curious if they're going to do a Ben Benoit documentary episode. Because, I mean, they're talking about dark stuff in the ring, and it just seems like that's the darkest, like the it's the darkest stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the darkest I, I, one. Yeah. It's it's hard, man. I don't know. Because it was like uh, Benoit's sister in law, I think, went on Chris Jericho's podcast and told like her perspective on the whole story. Yeah. And it's so fucking dark to hear them talk about it. And you're just like, and like that was a, like, you know, for people who don't know, like Chris Benoit, like, killed his wife and son and himself in like 
it's a much more complicated story than that. But this was a guy who was like considered a real stand-up guy. He wasn't, nobody thought of him as being like a. He certainly wasn't like a drug addict or anything. You know what I mean? Like he yeah. Was, this he, took everybody by surprise. Yeah, and it just kind of happened out of nowhere. And so, like, and like Chris Jericho, who's one of his friends in the industry because they're both from Western Canada, and had his sister-in-law on the show and just talked about everything that went on or, or leading up to it. And it just, it sounds like it was just so fucked up. I've probably talked about it before, but I actually met Chris Jericho the weekend after it happened. Oh. He was at a convention. I was shocked that he didn't cancel. But yeah, so I went and I'm just like, oh, fuck. Like, because I was doing a, a horror podcast at the time called Horror Junk, and we were a video podcast. And I wanted to talk to him, interview him, because he's been in some weird low-budget horror movies. And I'm just like, well, do I ask him to do an interview? Because honestly, if I was him, I'd be like, nah, I'm not doing an interview this week. Yeah. And I would be like, cool, and not have a problem with that. So I asked him, and he was totally all about it. And so I tried to, like, without full-out saying it, reassure him that I was not looking for some shock piece, that I was just... I'm just like, yeah, we just want to talk about, you know, some of the horror movies you've done and stuff. And, I, you know, it's really polite and really nice to him. And I'm just like, just just do everything you can to not say Benoit in one, one way or another. Just don't, like, even on accident, like, oh, I'm really sorry to hear it. Like, don't even say that. Just, just ignore it completely. And it was probably the most nerve-wracking 10 minutes of my life because I'm just like... Fuck, like I feel, I feel horrible for him, but I don't want to say anything because I don't even want to bring it up. Yeah, I, I wouldn't know what to say in those circumstances. Me neither. It ended up being a lot of fun, and he is a really cool guy and stuff. But I was just like, man, I just can't even imagine what kind of weekend he's having. Hopefully, everybody else here isn't being a complete jackass and saying anything. So. All right. Well, did you watch anything else? No, that was all I watched. So unfortunately, I can't rant anymore. Oh well, my wife was out of town for three or four days, so I did nothing but watch movies. Oh, here we go. Uh, so first up, I watched uh, Dragged Across Concrete. Oh, yeah. Which is, uh, whatever that dude's name, the guy who made yeah. Bone Tomahawk and Brawl and Cell Block Ninety Nine. I don't, I don't know people's names, but I know who you mean. <laughs> well, I know there's some abbreviation in it, but I can't remember if it's the first name or the middle name or whatever. But So it's a new one with hit with uh, Vince Vaughn and Mel Gibson as uh, police officers who uh, sort of get in trouble for kind of roughing up a uh, uh, someone that they've arrested. And it's on video, so they kind of... But it's something that it's like Don Johnson plays their chief, and he's kind of like, this isn't horrible. You just... He was on the ground, and you put your foot on the back of his head. And I mean, I'm saying they're not... They weren't like, you know, beating the living shit up or anything. It's just something that he's like... He's like, we can deal with this. It's just you're going to be have to be suspended for like a month. No pay, so... You know, just... Just ready yourselves for that. And uh, so they decide they're going to 
they're going to um, uh, rob this other group of criminals. Okay. And so they're sort of setting this whole thing up and uh, trying to figure it out. And then, of course, it comes to fruition and uh, it goes completely as planned and there's no problems whatsoever. Oh, okay. Oh, no. that's that's That would make a very boring movie. So, of course, everything goes to shit. I thought we were finally going to get a happy story on today's podcast, nope. but I guess not. Nope. Uh, I will say I enjoyed the movie. The big problem is uh, this movie is two and a half hours long, and it does not need to be two and a half hours long. Okay. From what I've read, uh, Sony was... was it Sony? No, Lionsgate. Lionsgate was going to give this like a theatrical release. But they wanted him to trim it down from two and a half hours to like two hours. And he basically pointed out his final cut clause on his contract. And so they were like, all right, then I guess we're just going straight to VOD. So that's kind of what happened with it. Um, yeah, I don't think it needs to be two and a half hours. There's a lot of stuff they can cut out. Um, yeah, Some, sometimes directors love their own stuff a little too much. Yeah. Uh, you know, still, still good. I mean, Vince Vaughn's still good. Uh, and this is one of those movies that's like, um, oh yeah, I forgot how, how much I missed Mel Gibson. It's too bad. He's a horrible piece of shit type of situation. Yeah. Uh, cause he's really good in it, but you know, there's always still that black cloud looming over top of them. And it's just like, God damn it, Mel, why do you have to be such a horrible person? Or at least why couldn't you hide it better? So, uh, so recommend for me, if you're into those, like I said, like, uh, Bone Tomahawk and, um, uh, Brawl and Cell Block 99, definitely recommend. I mean, you sort of get, again, He's sort of uh, exploitation grindhouse. He sort of plots done like really stylistically and uh, yeah, just good acting. A lot of I'd say a lot of fun. I wouldn't call it fun, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's good stuff if you're in the movies and enjoy that kind of stuff. So recommend again playing out two and a half hours to give it a watch, but. I don't think you'd be disappointed. Uh, let's see. I'm going to follow that up with a movie called The Last Horror Film, which is a movie with Joe Spinell from Maniac fame. Right. And honestly, this is almost like Maniac Goes International. Because <laughs> uh, Joe Spinell plays a, a cab driver in New York who's obsessed with this horror actress. And she's going to be at Cannes Film Festival, so he decides I'm going to Cannes Film Festival. And I mean, if I talk to her and tell her I want to make a movie and want her to play the lead in it, of course, she'll just jump right on that. And, you know, she'll understand how great this movie is going to be that we're going to do together. Uh, so, of course, as soon as they get to Cannes, uh, people in her immediate friend circle start dying off one by one and everything is making it to look like Joe Spinell is obsessed with her and slowly killing off all of her friends 
the movie's okay. Definitely nowhere near as good as Maniac. Um, well, it's, just, it's not fair. Yeah, I know. And the thing that surprised me is I started the movie and the uh, the skyline of Tromaville showed up at the very beginning. And I was like, wait, this is a Troma release? And it's just one they picked up to release. It's not one that they produced. Right. But it still kind of shocked me. And when I started watching it, I was like, oh, yeah, the the filmmaking in this is like like trauma level. Like the it's just it's obviously done by someone who doesn't isn't on top of their filmmaking game. So some shots last longer than others, some shots are way overlit. Um Yeah. There's just a lot of stuff that they could have improved on. So ends up being just a so so movie. It's not great. It's not horrible. It's just Ended up not being what I wanted it to be. Uh, let's see. After what? After that, I watched Shockwaves, which is the Nazi zombie movie uh, that I had never seen before. It had been on my list for a while, but it's never right. gone around to see. So some people on a boat get shipwrecked, end up on this island. They find that there's a building on the island, so they go check it out. Turns out Peter Cushing lives there. He's German. Oh. And... We found, out, we found out that he was actually a lead scientist in an experiment during World War II to help create the ultimate soldier, even ones that could, uh, uh, what they call them, like, marine soldiers or aqua soldiers, something like that, I can't remember. Ones that essentially could live underwater. And so, I mean, they just essentially become Nazi zombies. And when they point out that there's this shipwreck outside, out on the reef or whatever, he gets really, um, like when they tell him about it, he, Cushing's kind of like, no, that was sunk. And they're like, no, it's, it's like up on the reef. Like, you know, we totally were by it. And so he's kind of freaked out. And of course, uh, these weird Nazi zombies that wear like welder's goggles start walking out of the ocean and then start picking people off one by one. Uh, it was pretty good. I enjoyed it. My friend Tony, when he saw that I was watching it, said he feels like there's a lot of good stuff there, but it feels like it's missing a reel somewhere towards the end, which I could totally see. It does sort of just go right to the uh, climax at some point. Um, but yeah, I still enjoyed it. It's fun. Nazi zombies. Walking out of the ocean. What else are you going to get? Yeah. That's been on my watch list forever just because the visuals of the zombies with the goggles on. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty good. Like the, like I said, the footage of them walking out of the ocean is pretty good. Um, some of the other stuff could be a little hokey at times, but, you know, 70s Nazi zombies, what are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, and then the last thing I watched was The Raid, which I have not had not seen yet. Okay. I bought the, I bought the double pack like about a year and a half ago. I just had not got around to getting had not got around to watching it. And I was like, you know what? I'm in the mood for a crazy action movie, so I think this is the perfect time to bust out the raid. And I had heard the comparison when it came out, but I feel like the people who made Dread owe this money so owe, owe owe this movie some money. 
yeah. because oh my god, the plot is so ridiculously similar. I've, I've heard that. I've never seen the raid either, but I've heard that it's basically the same movie. Yeah, it's not far off. Like, I was. I mean, I'm like, okay, it's probably like the idea is probably the same, but I mean, the idea is like almost the exact plot of both movies. So it's like Jesus Christ, but I mean, I still like Dread anyway. But I just was shocked at how similar it was. Um, so yeah, it's like a SWAT team essentially is going to raid this apartment building that this uh, sort of drug kingpin owns, and then he rents out rooms in it to uh, criminals essentially, like people that are just looking to kind of keep their head down and stay out of the spotlight. So you just go to this guy and he'll he'll rent you a room in his criminal apartment building. And so they get in there and they're they're gonna raid this place, which the police up to this point had had been off limits because there's a bunch of corrupt cops in the police force. Um, they kind of this group finds a, a specific reason to go in there. And then once they get in there, <laughs> the building goes on lockdown. Basically, the kingpin tells all of his residents, uh, whoever, like, if you guys kill this entire, because it's like 20-something, like, SWAT members, if you kill all these people, whoever did it, essentially will get a room in this apartment building for free forever. And so they're like, oh, fuck. So then this entire building turns on this entire SWAT team. And they decide, well, there's no point in going down because we can't get out. So the the only thing we're gonna have to do is go up until we get to the to the head guy and kill him. And we sort of focus on one specific guy who apparently is a master of this Indonesian martial arts that they showcase in this movie. And so then it's literally just them going floor by floor trying to get up to the top floor and uh, there's some twists and turns, and you find out some motivations by some characters of why they want to get to the top and why they even were raiding this building in the first place. And some really cool uh, visuals. Like, they, they find out that they need to go down a floor, and they find this part where the floor, uh, they can just take an axe and chop through it, and they'll get into the apartment below them. So they do it, and then people are jumping through this hole. And then as the as the criminals are breaking into the apartment, the last guy jumps through the hole, and the camera follows them through the hole down into the next apartment. So I was watching the special features, and they show like that they actually had essentially essentially the cameraman on the top floor was on a bungee cord type situation, and he follows the actor through the hole and then there's another camera operator because it was like on a handheld like rig there's another camera operator on the second floor and when the guy top of half of the first guy's body comes to the hole he grabs the camera and then keeps following along with the soldier soldiers and stuff and yeah there's just some crazy visuals and it was great so big recommend for me really enjoyed it uh, which led to me the next day watching The Raid 2, which <clears throat> takes place literally like two hours after the first movie is over with. And from what I had read, it seemed like it was going to um, take place in a prison. 
So in my head, I'm just like, okay. So essentially we'll get the fallout of the first movie and then the character for some reason will end up in this prison. And then the idea will be he has to fight his way out of a prison. I'm like, that, that I think could work really well for this movie where you wouldn't suffer from like the diehard syndrome where it's like, why does this guy keep end up ending up in all these crazy situations all the time where this one, he's like, it would be like, well, how can we get this guy to fight his way out of another building without it becoming apparent that he is the guy who fights his way out of buildings? It's like, well, if he ends up in a prison and has to fight all the criminals to, you know, not kill him and they get out for whatever reason, you can do that without feeling like you're just remaking the idea from the first movie and have it make somewhat uh, some sense in the storyline. Uh, turns out that is not what happened. Okay. That's a lot of planning for... Nope. Yeah, so I was kind of excited about it. And then, you know, the, the prison thing takes like the first 20 minutes... And then there's no, there's no, there's no raid in this second movie. He has to go undercover amongst like these, uh, amongst this like gang for like this gang mobster warfare type stuff. And number one, the first movie is an hour and a half. Second movie, two and a half hours, which it really doesn't need to be. That sounds like a problem already. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Especially because you're expecting a sequel to the first movie, and it sounds like what you're about to tell me is that it's not really a sequel to the first movie. Well, it is because the same, the main character is the same, but it's like yeah, totally completely different movie. Yeah, it the fight choreography is amazing, like it was in the first one. It looks a lot better because they had a higher budget because the first movie was so successful. But I told somebody when they were asking about it, I'm like, I feel like there's too much plot in this movie. Because there's a lot of shit going on about him being undercover, why he's undercover, how he went undercover in the first place. And then all the inner workings of this mob slash gang thing that he's involved with and the politics between the other gangs and like all this stuff. And I'm just like... This is like not what I watched this movie for. I watched this movie for a guy trying to fight his way out of a building. That was that was the great part about the first one. It was just a nice simple plot. And this is like crazy stuff like all over the place. So I ended up enjoying it a lot less. And I was a little disappointed because I kept hearing people were like, Oh yeah, the second one's just as good as the first one and like all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't think it's anywhere near as good as the first one. But I mean maybe I just wanted another movie with a guy fighting his way out of a building. That's not what I got. So I don't know. Um it's like I said, good action scenes. Looks good. Just did not deliver the stuff that I actually wanted to watch. So it's kind of a disappointment. But would recommend the first one. Everybody should watch that one. Yeah, that's upsetting about the second one. Yeah, but <laughs> here's a brief glimpse of some of the truly fine pictures we've scheduled in the near future. Noah, are you still here? Do you want to tell everybody what we're doing for next week? Uh, we are going to uh, lighten things up and do uh, no retreat, no surrender, and the Karate Kid. 
Oh, how sure. you think a tale of bullying is going to turn around to be a, a lighter take than what we've watched. Technically, this week's movies had a lot of bullying in them, and you were very upset by it. <clears throat> you shush. Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi will bring me joy. Yeah, do you remember Mr. Miyagi anally raped all those kids that were beating up on Daniel? It is it is a grown adult who sees some kids in a fight and just steps in and beats the shit out of them. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's fine. Uh, we are doing the Jaden Smith one, right? No. Oh. Fuck, fuck you. <laughs> Not even uh, funny. Uh, it's pretty funny. <laughs> You're cruel. You're a cruel man. <laughs> did, I just, did I just put Jaden Smith in your brain and made you unhappy? God damn it. Stupid movie called Karate Kid being about kung fu <laughs> for some fucking reason. <laughs> like they did. They're like, let's do a remake of the Karate Kid. And then they did it, and they're like, well, that was shitty. Anybody want to see if uh, if old Daniel-san and Johnny want to come back and do a, a series on YouTube about Karate Kid? That'll be fun. Let's make it only available on a service that Doug's not allowed to subscribe to. Motherfuckers. You guys remember when I watched the first episode of that and really liked it, and then they wouldn't <laughs> let me watch the second episode because I'm in Canada because they're assholes? It might be available up here now. I haven't checked because fuck them. Season two is getting ready to start. I have not seen any of it because I'm not going to pay for YouTube. It's YouTube. Yeah, you could get a, a like a trial subscription though. But at this point, I would wait till season two is over with and just binge through both seasons. Seems like too much work. <laughs> yeah, because you—it's not the getting the trial subscription that's the problem. It's remembering to cancel it before you get charged. <laughs> Yeah, I've done that before. I don't know how many things I've paid for just because I'm like, oh, I can, I'll just cancel it the first time. Nope. I heard that they're going to do a uh, ESPN 30 for 30 on the tournament from the first credit again. I think I've seen either that's available or I've seen like trailers for it pop up or something. I haven't actually watched them. No. There's like, have you ever seen the 30 for 30 on Rocky 4? I have not. It's fantastic. It's it's absolutely amazing to watch it. They just it's just these legitimate sports figures talking about the boxing match from Rocky Four as if it happened. <laughs> and they're like they're like legitimately to going on about Rocky moved to Russia to train and stuff. And you're just like they they know it's fake, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Apparently they're they're doing one or have done one for tournament from the first movie in preparation as a promotional item for the second season. Yeah. Which I find pretty spectacular. I will watch that if it becomes available for free on YouTube. <laughs> I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Well, 30 for uh, 30 is like a sports documentary series that exists on ESPN. Yeah, that does like legit documentaries about uh, sports moments and yeah, kind of stuff. So uh, sport things. Yeah, I know. I've never. They did one on Ric Flair. I didn't watch that one. But. Oh, I, if you guys will recall, there was a time when I watched the Ric Flair one, and I was not particularly happy with it. No, that's <laughs> but, right. I do remember. But yeah, no, you can't. 
you can't um, be upset with us discussing sports when you got to pick the theme for next week and you picked <laughs> sports. I'm not upset about it. I'm just saying I don't I don't know sports things. Yeah. But you so, know that next week we're going to talk about movies that are all about people kicking each other in tournament type fighting, which is kind of sports, right? I I thought it was a movie about a old guy from Okinawa rediscovering like his his love through semi adopting a boy and teaching him. <laughs> which is weird when you think about how the series ended up. Because, because Mr. Miyagi became a dog in the final one. He became a dog in the final there's one. There's one where there's like a there's a movie called Karate Dog, and I'm pretty sure it has that actor. I voice I don't Karate Dog. I don't think that's canon. <laughs> I think I don't know. I haven't looked into it, but but yeah, he's just helping out this kid who lives in the apartment building where he works. And then in the second one, his mom, the kid's mom, is totally fine with him taking him halfway around the world, where he almost dies in a to the death fight. And then in the third one, his mom's like, fuck this, I'm moving back to Jersey. But he's like, oh, the, your son can live with me. That's no problem. Well, the kid is supposed to be going to college in the third one. He just <laughs> then takes the tuition money that his mom gave him and uses it to invest in a bonsai shop instead. Oh, because we know how those bonsai shops just started going up like crazy <laughs> after that. <laughs> I saw the... I, I remember rewatching that series like as an adult, like maybe when the DVDs came out or something. And you watch the first one, and you're like, "Okay, like we'll get into the specifics next week, and we'll comment on it." Yeah. The second one, you're like, "Wow, it went from high school bullies fighting in a karate tournament to a death match. That escalated really quickly." And then the third one, you're like, "Wait, the tournament again? He just fought <laughs> in a death match." <laughs> yeah, the, the stakes go from fighting for your life to like, eh. You'll what get another trophy. trophy. Yeah, you'll get another trophy. And the only one who understands it is Miyagi, because in the third one, he's like, no, we're not fighting to defend it. Like, no, we, we just fought for our lives. We're not training for a tournament next. <laughs> it's like, but low-class Steven Seagal told me I had to fight in this tournament. I know. Uh, next it. week, we should just do all three of the Karate Kid movies. We'll see. I'm not making any promises that I'll watch them all. But. Please, please don't ever make me watch Karate Kid 3 again. But they go, he wants him to fight in the tournament. So then when they climb down a hill to like go get a tree that they really like, they threaten to kill him unless they agree to fight in the tournament. That's normal, right? It's like, I want a shiny trophy and you're going to fight me for it or you're going to die. Right. And then instead of hurting a loved one, they, they break the branch of the bonsai tree, which is the final straw. <laughs> it's the last real bonsai tree that grew naturally. I mean, not the last one, but the last one of Mr. Miyagi's bonsai trees. <laughs> which I don't even think that's the last straw. I think it's when low-cut or poor man Steven Seagal like, ends up beating up Daniel that seems to be the last straw. Miyagi shows up and is like, oh, yeah? Then we'll fight your tournament. And it's like, yeah. but that doesn't... What? Look, it was the 80s. I think we should all be happy that nobody raped that girl that worked in the shop across the street from the Ponzi store. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm going to do my best to watch all three Credit Kid movies because we have to have this conversation. Next no, week. no. Fuck you guys. I'm watching Sidekicks. <laughs> You can watch Sidekicks, that's fine. <laughs> oh.
I mean, I'm not gonna make you watch the next Karate Kid. I won't. I'm not that oh, cruel. You remember? You remember whenever they ignored all the other Karate Kid movies, and they were like, "We'll just bring in a new person." <laughs> well, they can't have ignored it because she was the next. I never saw it fully, but she, if she's the next Karate Kid, they can't have been ignoring the other ones. They do mention Daniel at some point. Is there just but... like a weird line of dialogue, like? Daniel got an office job now, and he's out of shape, so he can't fight. Maybe I'll train you. Um, there's a mention because, of course, the girl moves into Mr. Miyagi's like Victorian home since, you know, apparently he won the lottery since the last movie. Yeah. And uh, so she moves in, and, of course, he walks in on her changing in the bathroom. She's got a bra on, and he's just like, oh, no, like, turns around, you know, walks out. That's- he's like... Oh, living with Daniel-san was so much easier. And that's pretty much it. I could walk in on Daniel-san whenever I wanted. (laughs) The only scene of the movie I've seen is when he walks in on her in the bathroom. And I remember, like, turning the movie on. And I don't... It was already on. So it was, like, on TV or whatever. And I turned it on, and I saw that scene. And I went, oh, that's what kind of movie this is? Nope. (laughs) I never watched it. (laughs) Yeah, I've only seen it the one time. And I was like, this is... This is not good. Not good at all. All right, so I guess we don't have to do Karate Kid next week after all. <laughs> Pretty much covered it. Uh, Sidekicks. Fucking Chuck Norris. Yeah, but then you got to remember Jonathan Brand has hung himself. So. Oh, God damn it! <laughs> Fuck. We will not let you be happy, though. <laughs> we will not let you enjoy your week. <laughs> Happy Easter, everyone. All I want is proof that there's joy in the world. Don't forget no. that Jonathan Brunus's little brother was eaten by a clown in the sewer. Well, that wasn't <laughs> such a big deal. But remember when he tore his arm right off? <laughs> fucking Georgie. Kid should have watched that fucking boat. He was warned. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.